I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part two of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, I'd really appreciate you subscribing on iTunes, and if you really like it, please leave a good review. And if you really, really like it, I'd really appreciate your help making this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. Thanks a lot. We're going to start with Act 1, Scene 3 of Julius Caesar. And this is a really, really cool scene, in part because there's a lot of, for want of a better word, magic in it. There's a lot of almost supernatural elements in this play, or allegedly supernatural elements. There's an obsession with what you might call omens or portents. It's all over this scene and all over the play as a whole. And these omens and portents are in Plutarch, in the original source material, and they were also a really big part of Roman culture. Romans called them auspices or auguries, and they're ceremonies that are performed by specially chosen priests in order to find out what the gods intended for humans. These priests are looking for signs from the natural world. They're looking at bird song or bird flight. They're looking at heavenly signs like thunder and lightning or eclipses or meteors. They're looking for animals behaving strangely. They're looking for sudden illnesses, etc., etc. This all falls under the umbrella of what's called divination, which is a kind of active way of looking for answers about the future. And one of the things that falls under this category is soothsaying, which we've already seen in the play. Another is dream interpretation, which we'll also see in the play. We're going to see a part where they actually explore the entrails of an animal sacrifice, which is weird, but also a part of divination. And beyond the supernatural part of it, or even the religious part of it, it's part of a larger conflict between schools of thought in this play, philosophies. This division between the Stoics and the Epicureans that Brutus and Cassius sort of embody. Stoics really believed in these omens, and Epicureans generally didn't. So it's sort of the dividing line between the characters in this play. Do you believe that these omens and portents show us our real future, or is there something we can do about it? So look, the representation in this play is fairly accurate to real Roman beliefs, this tension between fate or destiny and free will. But there would also have been a really powerful idea for a contemporary audience in Shakespeare's Elizabethan England. Because a belief in astrology was a big part of life at this time, divining your future from your stars, as they said. So there's a tension in this play and in many of Shakespeare's plays between the sort of pre-decided destiny that's divine from observing the natural world and the free choice to steer your own path in life. This is also, by the way, one of the central questions of the Protestant Reformation that's still very recent or even ongoing in Shakespeare's time. Are we predestined by God for heaven or hell no matter what we do, or do our actions in life affect our fate? And you'll see that appropriately enough, Act 1, Scene 3 starts with an act that has bad omen written all over it, which is a terrible storm. Let's just remember where we are and what just happened. These important guys are really disillusioned about what's happening in their country. They're worried Caesar's going to seize the throne. And there's now a plan for Brutus and Cassius to meet at Brutus's house the next night. So presumably, what we see here is that next night. Though, of course, remember, we're at an outdoor theater at about 2.30 in the afternoon. There's daylight. Presumably, there isn't a storm going on. So the language and the way the actors are acting have to paint the entire picture for the audience. And that happens from the second word of this scene. You have a new character coming on, but a character we've heard about so far, Cicero, the famous orator and politician. And he's meeting one we do know, Casca. He says, good even, Casca. And what is even? Evening. Good night. So we know it's nighttime. He says, brought you Caesar home? 
Did you bring, did you escort Caesar home? Why are you breathless, and why stare you so? Stare isn't just look intently, it's look amazed or look almost horror-stricken. You can also see how choppy the language is. Good even, Casca. Brought you Caesar home? Why are you breathless? And why stare you so? It gives you a real excited start to the scene. Because remember, we don't know there's a storm until they tell us there's a storm. Maybe there's some sound effects, but that's about it. And Casca has a question back for him. Are not you moved when all the sway of earth shakes like a thing unfirm? All the sway of earth. Sway means control or order. What's happening to the order of the earth? It's shaking like a thing unfirm. Unfirm as in unstable or even diseased, sick. So why aren't you as upset as I am? And do you notice something new about Casca? Remember in the last scene when Casca came in, he was speaking in prose? Well, now he's in rigid verse. This is in some ways a different Casca than we've seen before, a very shaken Casca. And he's going to tell us what's going on. He says, Oh, Cicero, I have seen tempests when the scolding winds have rived the knotty oaks, and I have seen the ambitious ocean swell and rage and foam to be exalted with the threatened clouds. But never till tonight, never till now, did I go through a tempest dropping fire. Okay, I have seen tempests. You may remember Shakespeare writes a play later in his career called The Tempest. It's kind of a severe windstorm, almost like a hurricane. So I've seen tempests when the scolding winds, it's an interesting adjective for them, almost like they're people, it means loud and angry, or literally like chiding or saying angry things to people. That's how angry these winds are. So he's seen storms where these angry winds have rived the knotty oaks. Rived means split. And presumably they're knotty oaks because they're old and strong. So they're powerful enough to split open these elderly oaks. So he's seen that before. And I've seen the ambitious ocean swell. This is a really, really interesting choice of words. Ambitious ocean. Why is the ocean ambitious? Well, it wants to swell and overrun its bounds, but it's a really calculated word in a play about ambitious men, like Caesar, who may have ambition to be king, or the men who are plotting against Caesar, who may have ambition to overthrow him. Now the ocean is ambitious too? So this ocean is swelling and raging and foaming. You can really see the build of those three hard verbs right in a row. Swell, rage, and foam. What is it ambitious to do? To be exalted with the threatening clouds. Exalted with means to be as high as the threatening clouds. So the ocean's ambition is to swell up as high as those black clouds are. So he's seen terrible storms before, but never till tonight. In fact, never till now, this very moment, did I go through a tempest dropping fire. So he's never seen the terrible storm when fire was dropping out of the sky. So this sounds like more than just lightning. It sounds like fire is literally dropping out of the sky. This is an intense storm. Fire cane. And he tries to explain it. He says, Either there is a civil strife in heaven, or else the world, too saucy with the gods, incenses them to send destruction. So either there's a civil strife, almost like a civil war between the gods in heaven. Something terrible is going on up there. Or else, the world, too saucy with the gods... Saucy is like defiant or insolent, like acting out against the gods. Incenses them. Incenses means angers them, makes them really angry so that they send destruction down to destroy us. So either the gods are mad with each other or they're really mad with us because of something we did. And Cicero is impressed. He says, why, saw you anything more wonderful? So this is a little bit of a playwright's trick. It's like a person talking, but mostly what he's saying is, go on. Wonderful, by the way, doesn't mean the same thing it means in our time. Or it's like, oh, that's wonderful. Here it means literally something that makes you amazed or full of wonder. And it isn't more wonderful, like more wonderful than that. It's have you seen anything else that is wonderful, that is amazing. 
And Casca says, in fact, I have. He says, a common slave, you know him well by sight, held up his left hand, which did flame and burn like twenty torches joined, and yet his hand, not sensible of fire, remained unscorched. Okay, the fire falling out of the sky thing was weird, but this is even weirder. A common slave, just a regular slave, you know him well by sight. He's one you know, so it's not some stranger or apparition. He held up his left hand. It's very specific. There is some sense in older traditions of the left hand being associated with evil things. As a left-handed person, I'm a little offended by that, but that's where we get the word sinister and things like that. So he holds up his hand, and it's on fire. It's flaming and burning like 20 torches joined. Literally joined together. Like if you held 20 torches together, that's how much fire is pouring off his hand. And yet his hand, not sensible of fire not able to feel the fire, remained unscorched. It's like the burning bush in the Bible. There's a huge fire on it, but the hand itself isn't damaged by the fire. And he goes on. Besides, I had not since put up my sword. Against the capital, I met a lion who glazed upon me and went surly by without annoying me. So besides, which means something more like on top of that, beyond just this one hand on fire thing. And then in parentheses, he says, I had not since put up my sword. I still haven't put away my sword or sheathed my sword. In other words, he didn't even have the time to put away his sword. It happened so soon after. So on top of that, against the capital, against here means near or right in front of the capital, which remember is probably the temple on the Capitoline Hill in Rome. He met a lion who glazed upon me. Glazed means something like glared or stared at me. And he went surly by, surly something like arrogantly or sort of haughtily, past him without annoying me. And annoying isn't just like, my little brother's annoying me, it means hurting or attacking me. So a wild lion is in the middle of Rome, it looks at him, and then it just walks by, which is weird. It's not trying to attack him. And he's got more crazy things. He says, And there were drawn upon a heap a hundred ghastly women, transformed with their fear, who swore they saw men all in fire walk up and down the streets. There were drawn upon a heap. Drawn upon a heap isn't like piled high, it's more like they were gathered together in a bunch maybe out of fear, a hundred ghastly women. Ghastly means not that they were scary, but that they were scared. They were aghast. They were terrified. So it's a group of a hundred women all gathered together, transformed with their fear, transformed by their fear. That's how afraid they were. It's a beautiful word choice, transformed. Transformed into what? Well, we don't know, but it's changed them profoundly. And they swore that they saw men all in fire walk up and down the streets. So not even people with their hands on fire, people with their entire bodies in fire. And notice towards the end of that, we get a line of all monosyllables. Men all in fire walk up and down the streets. It slows down this breathless story he's telling. And he has one last part. He says, And yesterday the bird of night did sit even at noonday upon the marketplace, hooting and shrieking. So yesterday the bird of night, presumably this is an owl, specifically a screech owl, which is famously another bad omen. When you hear it, you might be about to die. This happens in Macbeth, by the way. They hear a screech owl right before the murder. So the bird of night sat at noonday, right in the middle of the day, in the marketplace, hooting and shrieking. You can understand how unsettling that would be if it's, you know, 1230 in the afternoon or whatever, and this bird that isn't supposed to be there, that's nocturnal, is sitting in the middle of downtown, screaming its head off. And these are all really creative omens. Lest you think, oh, Shakespeare's a genius, he came up with all these awesome ideas. These are all 100% from Plutarch, totally ripped off. But they're done really well, and the language is done really well. So he lists all these terrible omens, and then he says, When these prodigies do so conjointly meet, let not men say, These are their reasons, they are natural. For I believe they are portentous things unto the climate that they point upon. 
So in these prodigies, not like math prodigies, it means portents, omens. When they do so conjointly meet, conjointly means together or all at once. So it'd be one thing for them to happen one at a time, but they're all happening at once at the same time. So when we see all these crazy things happening at once, let not men say, these are their reasons, they are natural. There's no explaining this away. This isn't just something that happens in nature. People aren't just like on fire all the time. He's explicitly arguing against a scientific or natural explanation of these omens, which you could easily give. You could just say, there's a weird storm, things are acting weird. He says, no, I believe they are portentous things. They're foreboding. They're predicting specific bad things to come in the future. Unto the climate, climate not like weather, but like region or country that they point upon, that they're directed at. So this is a warning from the gods to us about something that's going to happen in Rome. And Cicero doesn't quite agree with him. He says, indeed, it is a strange disposed time. A little bit of an understatement. Strange disposed means that unusual happenings are sort of tending to take place these days. It has been a weird time. I'm like, yeah, you think so, buddy? But then he has a caveat. He says, but men may construe things after their fashion, clean from the purpose of the things themselves. This line is usually done as a little bit of a throwaway, or sometimes part of the scene is even cut. I happen to think this is maybe the most important line in the play. Stay with me. So he says, men may construe things after their fashion. There's that word construe again. We've seen this in the context of the word interpret, too. So men can interpret or understand things after their fashion. In other words, in their own way, to suit themselves, however they want. So you can look at a thing, perhaps a hand on fire, and say, I think it means this because it's important for you. And they do this clean from the purpose of the things themselves. Clean from means completely different from or totally separate from the purpose, the intention of the things themselves. So whatever message the gods are trying to send us, or the weather is trying to send us, or is just happening, men are going to interpret it the way they want to for their own purposes, because that's what's important to them. This is a play about interpreting and misinterpreting and seeing things you want to see, regardless of what the truth is. We see very little of Cicero in this play, but if this was the only line he said, I think he'd be incredibly important. So keep that word construe in your mind for this play. There's a ton of construing going on. So now that we've got that one important philosophical statement out of the way, he has a question. He says, come Caesar to the capital tomorrow? Considering what's going on all around them, this terrible storm, it's a very practical question. Is Caesar coming to the capital tomorrow? And Casca answers, he doth, for he did bid Antonius send word to you he would be there tomorrow. He bid, he asked or request Mark Antony to send this message to you that he's going to be there tomorrow. Presumably they have more things to discuss after the incident the day before. So we know Caesar is on his way to the capital the next day. And Cicero, still surprisingly unfazed, says, Good night then, Casca. This disturbed sky is not to walk in. And it's another image to kind of fill in the audience's imagination. The sky is actually disturbed. We shouldn't be walking underneath it while it's raining and winding. And Casca says, Farewell, Cicero. And off goes Cicero. And just as he leaves at one door, in the other one comes our old friend Cassius. And to reinforce that it's night and probably pretty dark, Cassius's first words are, Who's there? And Casca gives a weird response. He says, a Roman. Like, duh, we're in Rome. It's probably a Roman. But it's very guarded on his part. And Cassius knows immediately him by voice. He says, Casca, by your voice. Notice how clipped this exchange is between them. Who's there? A Roman. Casca, by your voice. It's all one verse line. They're jumping onto each other. A very similar thing happens again in Macbeth, right after the murder. You have these people who are very tightly wound, and they have these very tight exchanges back and forth. Who's there? A Roman. Casca, by your voice. And once that's established, we return back to regular verse lines. 
It's as though the tension's been diffused a little bit now that they know they're friends. Casca says, Your ear is good. Cassius, what night is this? In other words, what a night we're in here. It's terrible. And Cassius has an interesting response. What night is it? He takes the cue of night. He says, A very pleasing night to honest men, which may also indicate that he thinks it's going to be a bad night for dishonest men. Casca doesn't really comment on that weird statement. He says, Whoever knew the heavens menace so. Whoever knew, whoever had the experience of, or whoever saw the heavens menace so, threatened in this way. And it's kind of a rhetorical question, but Cassius picks up on his language again, on his cue, and answers it directly. He says, those that have known the earth so full of faults. It's the kind of witty exchange you'd almost see in a comedy, not a tragedy. So who knew the heavens to menace so? I'll tell you who. Those, the people, who have known the earth to be so full of faults. Faults as in sins. Almost like he sees this weather not as a portent of bad things to come, but a portent that sinners are going to be punished. He goes on, For my part, I have walked about the streets, submitting me unto the perilous night, and thus, unbraced, Casca, as you see, have bared my bosom to the thunderstone. Cassius is in a weird place right now. He says, For my part, as for me, I've been walking around the streets. Not a great idea in a lightning storm. Submitting me unto the perilous night. He's just taking it all in. No umbrella, no nothing. And thus unbraced. Unbraced means with his jacket untied and open. Again, a very Elizabethan idea of clothing. But instead of closing your jacket and trying to keep as warm and dry as possible, he's opened it up. It's a costume cue to the actor. So why has he opened it? Because he's bearing his bosom, literally his chest, but it also often refers to his heart, as though he's opening himself completely in every way to the thunderstone, which means to us something like the thunderbolt. This actually comes from a really cool part of folklore, which is that when they found ancient arrowheads from previous civilizations just out in the fields, their explanation for this was that they were physical thunderbolts sent down from heaven. So he's walking around bare-chested, open up to the skies, putting himself in the danger, in the peril of being hit by one of these thunderbolts. And on top of that, he says, and when the cross blue lightning seemed to open the breast of heaven, I did present myself even in the aim and very flash of it. When the cross, not angry cross, but forked, like the branching blue lightning, seemed to open the breast of heaven. This goes back to that previous image of bearing his bosom. It's as though the sky's chest was split open by the lightning. So while the lightning was going crazy in the skies, he says, I did present myself even in the aim and very flash of it. Even means just exactly, like right in the aim, the place it was aimed at, and very flash of it. It's as though he's trying to get hit by lightning. He's tempting the heavens. It's a very King Lear sort of moment, actually. Come get me, gods. And Casca is understandably freaked out by this. He's probably never seen Cassius like this before. He says, but wherefore did you so much tempt the heavens? Wherefore, why? Why are you tempting the gods to kill you? It is the part of men to fear and tremble when the most mighty gods, by tokens, send such dreadful heralds to astonish us. So it's the part, almost like it's the role or the job of men. It's their part to play, to fear and tremble, when the most mighty gods, by tokens, tokens are omens or signs, like this storm, for example, send such dreadful heralds. Heralds are literally messengers that go before an army. So in this case, it's those signs again, those omens. And dreadful because they cause dread, they cause fear. So when you see these terrible omens, your job is to be afraid. Why are you not afraid? And Cassius snaps right back at him. He says, you are dull, Casca, and those sparks of life that should be in a Roman, you do want, or else you use not. So you're dull, you're sluggish, or even stupid. It's sort of like that word blunt they used to describe him earlier. And those sparks of life that should be in a Roman, you know, that lively spirit, 
You do want. Want means lack, not desire in our modern sense. You're not acting like a real Roman. Either you don't have them, or else you're not using them. You look pale and gaze and put on fear and cast yourself in wonder to see the strange impatience of the heavens. So I'm the real Roman. You look pale. You gaze. You know, like you're staring with your mouth open. You put on fear. Put on can mean show or act out. Almost a sense of putting on wearing like clothes. And you cast yourself in wonder. Cast yourself means you throw yourself into this appearance of wonder. At what? At seeing the strange impatience of the heavens. I think this is a really beautiful phrase and incredibly specific. You get those long A sounds. Strange impatience. Why are you acting like so much of a coward? But if you would consider the true cause, why all these fires, why all these gliding ghosts, why birds and beasts from quality and kind, why old men, fools, and children calculate, why all these things change from their ordinance, their natures, and preformant faculties to monstrous quality, why you shall find that heaven hath infused them with these spirits to make them instruments of fear and warning unto some monstrous state. This is really Cassius at high rhetoric. Look at the structure of this line. So if you consider the true cause, so he's going to explain why all these things are happening. The cause, why all these fires, the ones falling from the heaven and the ones on the people, why all these gliding ghosts. It's a beautiful phrase, those hard G sounds repeated. Gliding ghosts. We haven't heard that before. There's ghosts in the streets. Why birds and beasts from quality and kind. So birds and beasts, birds and animals, from quality and kind means that they're behaving contrary to their characters and natures. They're behaving differently than they usually do. Like that lion that isn't attacking people. And the cause why old men, fools, and children calculate. Fools are idiots, but they're more specifically people who are sort of mentally slow. It's what they used to call natural fools, as distinct from people who worked as jesters. People with mental disabilities. So old men, fools, and children calculate. Calculate not like doing math. It means predicting the future or telling fortunes. That's another thing we haven't heard before. Apparently everyone's becoming a fortune teller. And the cause why all these things change from their ordinance. Ordinance meaning the place in life they were ordained to carry out. So all these things are acting differently than their ordinance, their natures, and preformed faculties. Preformed is like innate or previously decided. And faculties are like abilities or functions. So basically this list is everything is changing from the way it's supposed to be into monstrous quality. Monstrous isn't just scary monster, it means unnatural. And there's also some sense of it as an omen of predicting the future. That word demonstrate comes from the same root. One origin of the word monster may be from birth defects, which were also seen as a bad omen because it demonstrated, it showed something bad was coming in the future. So all these natural things are changing from their usual way into monsters, into different things that are bad omens. And look at that structure. Why, 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 why? It's a refrain, and it really helps it build. And then what's funny is that he starts his next sentence with also why, but in a different sense. Why, you shall find that heaven. So if you look at the reason, you'll find that heaven hath infused them with these spirits. Spirits here means like their new natures. They used to be this one thing, but now they've been infused with new spirits, almost like they're possessed. So why did heaven do this to them, change them? To make them instruments of fear and warning. Instruments are almost like tools or vessels of fear and warning unto some monstrous state. So they've been changed into monsters because the state is monstrous. State can mean condition, like the condition of the times we live in is monstrous and awful. But it can also literally mean the government. 
like things are going strangely in the government of our country. So to reflect that and warn about it, heaven is making all these changes. And now he's going to say what he's really thinking. He says, Now could I, Casca, name to thee a man most like this dreadful night, that thunders, lightens, opens graves, and roars as doth the lion in the capital. So I could name a man to you most like this dreadful night, very similar to this dreadful night. This man thunders, he lightens, lightens as in flashes lightning, opens graves, referring back to those ghosts again, and roars as doth the lion in the capital. Oh, so he's seen the lion too. So there's a man who's talking really big, basically is what he's saying. He goes on, A man no mightier than thyself or me in personal action, yet prodigious grown and fearful as these strange eruptions are. He's going back to a favorite image of his. So a man no mightier, who's no stronger than you are or I am in personal action. So nothing he does is stronger than anything we could do, yet prodigious grown. So he's grown to be prodigious. Remember that word prodigies from before? It means ominous or portending evil. So this man bodes badly, even though he's just a regular human, and fearful. Not that he's scared himself, but that he causes fear in other people, as these strange eruptions are. Eruptions is a beautiful word. It means like outbreaks or disturbances, referring to those omens again. But literally, of course, it's something from underneath exploding up, as though this has been underneath the surface all along, and now it's coming up. This is a really cool line, too, because Shakespeare's going to copy it in his next play, in Hamlet. I think in the first scene, when they're trying to figure out why there's a ghost in their land, and they say this bodes some strange eruption to our state. In that same scene, by the way, they talk about why the ghost is in Denmark, and they tell the story of this night in Rome. They say, a little ere the mightiest Julius fell. In other words, right before Julius Caesar died, there were all these weird omens. They talk about the dead being in the streets and all that stuff. So it's a cool little reference for plays that are probably running next to each other, or at the very least, everyone has just seen Julius Caesar, or at the very least, Hamlet refers back to it, so it's a kind of cool connection between those plays. You also see some Julius Caesar references in that play within the play scene, when the actors who play Hamlet and Polonius may be referring to their parts playing Brutus and Caesar in Caesar. But it's really cool to see the same exact phrase, strange eruption, in both plays. So Cassius is sort of hinting there, and Casca immediately picks up on it. Remember, he's blunt. He says, "'Tis Caesar that you mean, is it not, Cassius?" So it's like, oh, I know a man. He's like, no, you're, just, you're talking about Caesar, right? But Cassius just sort of blows it off. He says, let it be who it is. So I can neither confirm nor deny. But he continues on his polemic. He says, "'For Romans now have thews and limbs like to their ancestors, "'but woe the while, our fathers' minds are dead, "'and we are governed with our mothers' spirits.'" So Romans now, Romans today, have thews and limbs. Thews is a cool word. It means like muscles or sinews. In other words, the source of your physical strength. So we have the limbs and the muscles like our ancestors, but woe the while. It's a nice phrase. You have that cool W sound, woe the while. Alas for our own times, our father's minds are dead. So basically like the spirit of our fathers, the thing that could decide to do things, that's dead. And we are governed with our mother's spirits. In other words, we're controlled by the spirits of our mothers, not our fathers. It's a nice little antithesis of fathers' minds and mothers' spirits. So we have the same bodies that our ancestors had, the same power to do things. But instead of acting like our brave fathers used to, our male ancestors, we're acting like our mothers, like cowardly women. I know the gender politics is garbage, but it was 1599. What are you going to do? He says, our yoke and sufferance show us womanish. There's that word yoke again, which he used with Brutus. It's the image of a beast of burden with a yoke on them pulling the plow. It literally means our state of enslavement. It's a metaphor for that. So our yoke, our enslavement, and our sufferance, 
Sufferance isn't just suffering in our modern sense, it means putting up with it or enduring it, specifically the bad situation we're in. So the fact that we're willing to put up with being enslaved, that show us, reveals us to be womanish rather than mannish. So we're cowards because we'll put up with being enslaved. And Casca agrees. He says, indeed, they say the senators tomorrow mean to establish Caesar as a king, and he shall wear his crown by sea and land in every place save here in Italy. So the rumor is that they're going to get around this on a technicality. So they say, rumor is, the senators tomorrow mean they intend to establish Caesar as a king. But since you're technically not allowed to do that in Rome, he shall wear his crown by sea and land in every place save here in Italy, in every place except for Italy. This line, he shall wear his crown by sea and land, incidentally, is a direct quote from Norse Plutarch. So you can see Shakespeare lifting phrases he likes from his source. Nowadays, you get in trouble for plagiarism. At the time, copyright was not a thing, so go to town, Shakespeare. So Cassius talks about that yoke and sufferance, and Casca, again, in his nature, cuts to the point. He says, they're going to name him king tomorrow. And Cassius replies, I know where I will wear this dagger then. So that seems to indicate a prop that he takes out. This dagger, this dagger I'm holding, he says, I know where I'll wear it then. He's not going to wear it in his scabbard. He's going to wear it in his heart. This is a suicide threat. If they name Caesar king, he's going to kill himself. Cassius from bondage will deliver Cassius. Bondage is slavery. Only Cassius can deliver himself from slavery, and he's going to do it by killing himself. So he's not going to have to put up with Caesar ruling him because he'll be dead. This is the source of one of my favorite ridiculous facts about Cassius, which is that he threatens to kill himself in pretty much every scene he appears in in the play. You can go through. We'll, we'll touch on it as we go. In Shakespeare's time, this would have been seen as very Roman that Romans were willing to die for their own honor, but it becomes almost a little bit of a running joke with Cassius that he's a little on the dramatic side and he threatens to kill himself in literally every scene he's in. And then he gives a little bit of an ode to suicide. He says, therein, you gods, you make the weak most strong. Therein, in that way, in other words, with the act of killing yourself, you gods, you make the weak most strong. So it's a little bit of an oxymoron. You make weak people, people who are subjugated, you make them strong by giving them the ability to kill themselves. Therein, you gods, you tyrants do defeat. So it's a real rhetorical structure, that repetition of therein, you gods, therein, you gods. That's how you defeat tyrants. You take away their subjects from them by suicide. He says, nor stony tower, nor walls of beaten brass, nor airless dungeon, nor strong links of iron can be retentive to the strength of spirit. But life, being weary of these worldly bars, never lacks power to dismiss itself. So this first nor here means neither. So neither a stony tower, almost like a prison tower, nor walls of beaten brass. You can hear the alliteration of beaten brass. It's a very strong feeling. Nor airless dungeon, nor strong links of iron, links as in chain links of iron. So none of those prisons, none of those restrictions can be retentive to the strength of spirit. Retentive here means confining or imprisoning the strength of the spirit. So they can hold the body, but not the spirit. And you have Cassius's trademark S sounds, the strength of spirit. You also see another repetition, nor, 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 nor. He's big on these lists with the same phrasing. So none of these prisons can hold the spirit. Instead, he says, life being weary of these worldly bars. Bars aren't like prison bars, they're obstacles. But they're worldly obstacles, they're not spiritual obstacles. So life never lacks power to dismiss itself. Dismiss here means do away with, do in. You also get another alliteration, weary of these worldly bars. If I know this, know all the world besides. So if I know this fact that anyone can kill themselves whenever they want to, everyone else in the world should know it. 
That part of tyranny that I do bear, I can shake off at pleasure. So that part of tyranny, any tyranny that I put up with, and bear means suffer from or endure, I can shake off at pleasure. I can get rid of it whenever I want to. And there's a lot of powerful convincing language, rhetorical techniques, those repetitions. So much so that Casca actually finishes his line. I can shake off at pleasure and Casca finishes his line with, so can I. He's jumping on the end of it. I could kill myself too. So every bondman in his own hand bears the power to cancel his captivity. Every bondman, every slave, bears, holds in his own hand. Though see again, he pushes the verb to the end of the line for more power. Every slave holds the power in his own hand to cancel his captivity. Cancel means nullify, almost like you'd nullify a contract. And how do you cancel your slavery? By killing yourself. And finally, Cassius names the name. He says, and why should Caesar be a tyrant then? If literally everyone has a way to get rid of the tyranny, why should this person Caesar be a tyrant then? Poor man. I know he would not be a wolf, but that he sees the Romans are but sheep. He doesn't want to be a wolf. He doesn't want to be a tyrant. But that, if it weren't for the fact that he sees that Romans are but sheep, they're willing to put up with it, so he's going to have to be the tyrant. He were no lion, were not Romans' hinds. He wouldn't be a lion, he wouldn't be a tyrant, if it wasn't for the fact that Romans are hinds. Hinds are deer. They're willing to put up with it, so he'll be their predator. Those that with haste will make a mighty fire, begin it with weak straws. So those that with haste, that quickly will want to make a mighty fire, someone who wants to make a fire quickly, begin it with weak straws, with tiny little pieces of straw. And the person who's making the mighty fire here is Caesar. He's making it out of the Romans, the weak straws. He goes on with the same image. He says... What trash is Rome? What rubbish and what awful when it serves to the base matter to illuminate so vile a thing as Caesar? There's that repetitive structure again. What, what, what? What trash is Rome? What garbage? Tinder, basically. What rubbish and what awful? Awful here just means waste. We're used to it meaning meat waste, like the kind you get from a butcher shop, almost as though the Roman's flesh is tinder for him to light his fire. So we Romans must be garbage if we're serving for the base matter, Base matter can mean low materials, but it can also be base as in like the base of a statue, the originating material, what makes the fire. So we're garbage if all we are is the ingredients to illuminate, to light up as a fire, so vile a thing, so despicable a thing as Caesar is. He's using us. But then he catches himself. He says, but oh grief, where hast thou led me? I think, by the way, he doesn't actually feel this. I think for him, this is a little bit of a trap for Casca to fall into. We think he's just been expressing himself, but actually he's doing the same thing he did in the previous scene with Brutus. He's trying to draw Casca in and tell him about his plan. So he blames it on his grief, as though in his grief, his emotions got away from him and he revealed his real thoughts. And why does he claim to be worried? He says, I perhaps speak this before a willing bondman. Then I know my answer must be made. So maybe I'm saying this in front of a willing slave, someone who's okay with serving Caesar. Then I know my answer must be made, my payment or my accountability for speaking these kind of rebellious, even treasonous statements. Because if Casca doesn't agree with him, he's going to turn him in. But he says, but I am armed and dangers are to me indifferent. I'm armed, maybe literally, but it may also mean that he's prepared to die if he has to for his beliefs. And dangers are to me indifferent. In other words, they're all the same to me. They're unimportant to me. I'm just as worried about Caesar taking over as I am being executed for rebelling against him. I'll answer my crime. And Casca picks up on his cue. I perhaps speak this before a willing bondman. He says, you speak to Casca and to such a man that is no fleering telltale. So you're not talking in front of a willing slave. You're talking to Casca, such a man, the kind of man that is no fleering telltale. That's a cool phrase. Fleering means like mocking or jeering. 
And a telltale is like a gossip or someone who gives away others' secrets. I'm not going to turn you in. He says, hold. Like, wait a second. That's enough. My hand. Not hold my hand, but like, wait, here's my hand. As in, I agree with you. Or even, let's swear friendship. And he says to him, be factious for redress of all these griefs, and I will set this foot of mine as far as who goes farthest. So be factious. In other words, be ready to join a faction for redress, for fixing or repairing all these griefs. Not literal griefs, but grievances, wrongs. And it actually ties in with Cassius's O Grief from the previous lines. So if you're willing to stand up against these bad things, I will set this foot of mine as far as who goes farthest. I mean, the image is of someone running ahead of other people, but he's essentially saying, I'll go as far as anyone else for this cause if you're a part of it. I'll be at the front of the line. And Cassius jumps right on to finish his line. He says, there's a bargain made. Bargain not like they're haggling in the marketplace for the price of fish, but bargain is an agreement. Like, we've made an agreement. We're going to be on the same team. So he fully lets him in on the plan. He says, Now know you, Casca, I have moved already some certain of the noblest-minded Romans to undergo with me an enterprise of honorable, dangerous consequence. So you should know, Casca, I have moved already. I've already encouraged or prompted some certain of the noblest-minded Romans. Some certain means like several. So he's already talked to some of the noblest-minded Romans to undergo with me, to undertake or attempt an enterprise of honorable, dangerous consequence. I love this word, honorable, dangerous, as though it's both honorable and dangerous at the same time. It's a hyphen, but you could almost use a forward slash, honorable slash dangerous. And I do know by this, they stay for me in Poppy's porch. By this, by now, by this time, they stay for me, they're waiting for me in Pompey's porch. This is a place in Rome, also known as the portico of Pompey. It was a sort of public space that was built by Caesar's old friend and rival Pompey. But it's a landmark in Rome, and that's where they're meeting tonight. So it's as though he's got to get going. He says, for now, this fearful night, there is no stir or walking in the streets. Fearful as in causing fear because of all the crazy stuff in the street. There is no stir, no activity. There's no one out walking in the streets except us. They're all staying inside because of the ghosts and burning and lions and whatnot. And the complexion of the element in favor is like the work we have in hand, most bloody, fiery, and most terrible. The complexion of the element, in other words, the appearance of the sky, in favor. Favor refers to the look, especially the look of the face. It's talking about the sky as almost like a giant face with a complexion. In favor, in appearance, it's just like the work we have in hand. In hand means ready to perform or that we're about to do. This dark, crazy sky looks just like our work that we're about to do. Most bloody, fiery, and most terrible. So that's a description of the sky and the act they're going to have to perform. And this is, in some ways, the first time we get a sense that they're going to have to kill Caesar. And so maybe one of the reasons that Cassius is out in the street, totally exposed to danger, is because he's readying himself to do something as horrible as the evening. But then someone else appears on stage, an unexpected person. Remember, there's a terrible storm still going on. Who's this other guy outside? And Casca says, stand close a while, for here comes one in haste. So he doesn't just come on stage, he's rushing onto the stage. Stand close. Close isn't just close to me, it means concealed or hidden. So hide yourself for a little bit. Here comes one in haste. Here's someone in hurry and rushing. But Cassius recognizes him. He says, "'Tis Cinna, I do know him by his gait. Gait is his walk or his footsteps. He can recognize him just by the sound of his feet. He is a friend. Don't have to worry, he doesn't have to hide. Cinna, where haste you so? Where are you hurrying that fast? And Cinna answers, "'To find out you.'" Find out means locate. I'm rushing because I'm trying to find you. Who's that? Metella Simber? 
oh, so we know there's another conspirator in on this. It's not just Cassius and Casca and Cinna, also this guy Simber. Cassius answers, no, it is Casca, one incorporate to our attempts. Incorporate to means united with. He's in our boat with us, in our attempts, in our plan. But it's a really cool image because incorporate literally means part of the same body, as though they're joined together physically, which also means they can't be separated. They're in this for life or death. So Casca's on board with us. Am I not stayed for, Sinna? Stayed means waited for. Did you come to find me because everyone's waiting for me in Poppy's porch? And Sinna replies to the first part of the sentence. He says, I'm glad on it. In other words, I'm glad Casca's with us too. But then he goes off on a little tangent. What a fearful night is this. Yeah, we know. Fearful, a scary night. There's two or three of us have seen strange sights. You get another sense of the supernatural just with the language. Seen strange sights. Those S sounds of alliteration. So two or three of us guys outside have seen strange sights. No kidding. Was it the lion and the ghosts, etc., etc.? But he's got an off topic and he doesn't answer Cassius's question. So Cassius has to repeat it. He says, am I not stayed for? Aren't they waiting for me? Tell me. And notice how choppy his language has gotten. It's really speeding up the scene. And Sinner replies at last. He says, yes, you are. But then he has a wish. He says, oh, Cassius, if you could but win the noble Brutus to our party, if you could but win, if you could only win over the noble Brutus, there's that phrase again, noble Brutus, to our party, to our side. But before he can finish that, Cassius interrupts him. He says, be you content. Don't be worried about that. I got it under control. And he gives him instructions. He says, good Sinna, take this paper and look you lay it in the praetor's chair where Brutus may but find it. Look you means you be sure to lay it in the praetor's chair. Praetors are these 16 magistrates who serve under the consul, sort of like judges, and Brutus was one of them. So lay it in this chair of his office where Brutus may but find it, just only discover it. And throw this in at his window. So you can see by all the this is that he's handing him papers one at a time. Remember this was his plan from the previous scene? That he was going to write up in different handwriting all these requests from the citizens to Brutus? So take this paper and put it in his chair. Throw this in at his window, this one. Set this up with wax upon old Brutus's statue. So set this up, almost like post it up or stick it with wax, on old Brutus's statue. And who's old Brutus? Well, it's that supposed ancestor of his, Lucius Junius Brutus, the guy who founded the Roman Republic. So he's going to set all these anonymous letters up to Brutus in places where he might run across them. All this done, repair to Pompey's porch, where you shall find us. So once you've done all that delivering, repair, not like do repairs on its roof, it means go or make your way to Pompey's porch, where you shall find us. That's where we'll be waiting. Is Decius Brutus and Trebonius there? Oh, so now we have more names of conspirators. Have they gotten there yet? And Cinna replies, all but Metellus Simber, and he's gone to seek you at your house. So everyone but Metellus Simber is there, and the only reason he's gone is because he went to look for you at your house. And he finishes, well, I will high and so bestow these papers as you bade me. I will high, not like hello, high means hurry. I'll hurry up and I'll bestow, I'll deliver these papers, or I'll place them as you bade me, as you asked me to do with them. And Cassius reminds him, that done, repair to Pompey's theater. It's a real repetition. Repair, go, make your way to Pompey's theater when you're done and offer on Cinna. So there's some real energy in this scene now. And with that, Cassius turns back to Casca and says, Come, Casca, you and I will yet ere day see Brutus at his house. So ere day, before daybreak, we'll still have a chance to see Brutus at his house, which prefigures what's going to happen next, which is that they're going to go visit him. He says, Three parts of him is ours already, and the man entire upon the next encounter yields him ours. So three parts of him, in this case, sort of like three quarters of him, is ours already. We already have him thinking about this. He's almost on our team. And the man entire, the whole man, 
the other part of him upon the next encounter yields him ours the whole man will give himself to our cause the next time we see him so cassius is very confident he thinks he just has a little bit of persuading left to do and brutus will come over to their side and casca responds oh he sits high in all the people's hearts and that which would appear offense in us his countenance like richest alchemy will change to virtue and to worthiness brutus is a really important guy to have on your team for pr purposes he sits high in all the people's hearts everyone thinks so well of him and that which would appear offense in us a thing that would look like a crime if we did it his countenance countenance can mean your literal appearance but it can also mean support so it would look like a bad thing if we did it on our own but having his support like richest alchemy this is a really cool image alchemy was this sort of pseudoscience at the time that you could transform these base metals like lead into precious metals like gold or silver so just like that magical alchemy the base metals of our plans will be transformed by brutus's support into virtue into worthiness he's the key to this plan because he gets popular support for them even though what they have to do is kind of gross and illegal cassius replies him and his worth and our great need of him you have right well conceited conceited means understood or thought through almost like the word conceived like he really summed up how important he is and how much we need him let us go for it is after midnight and ere day we will awake him and be sure of him so there's some real energy here let's go it's after midnight already so we know what time it is ere day before daybreak we will awake him we'll wake him up and be sure of him in other words we'll secure his support we'll make sure he's on our team and this is a great setup for the next scene because that's literally what they're going to do it's always great to have a character as they're about to leave the stage be like and here's what we're going to do next and then that thing happens and lo and behold just as act two starts when we've been warned that they're about to visit brutus we go to see brutus that same night and we see brutus outside and how do we know he's outside from his first lines he calls out he says what lucius ho ho is an interjection along the lines of hey or hey there and lucius presumably from this usage is someone who works for him so he calls out for lucius and then he says back to himself i cannot by the progress of the stars give guess how near today that's how we know he's outside he's looking up at the stars and by progress he means their progress across the sky over the course of the night so if you knew the stars really well you could basically guess what time it is based on where they were in the sky it's really interesting too that at the beginning of this scene that's all about him thinking about his destiny he's looking up at the stars but he's saying he doesn't know how near today to daybreak they are based on his looking at the stars he's lost basically he can't see his own future and he calls back he says lucius i say where's that kid and then he says back to himself i would it were my fault to sleep so soundly i would as in i wish and by fault he means sort of ironically he wishes he were guilty of being able to sleep as soundly as lucius is so right away we know he's having trouble sleeping and he calls out to him again when lucius when as in when will you be here awake i say what lucius he's really short here he needs lucius and finally finally in comes lucius he says called you my lord yeah you think so kid and brutus has his instructions for him he says get me a taper in my study lucius a taper is a candle so he's going to go inside and he needs a candle for it because it's the middle of the night he says when it is lighted come and call me here so when everything's set up with the candle come call me inside he's going to do something with that candle and lucius replies i will my lord and he goes back in to set things up and now we finally find out because brutus is left alone what's going on inside brutus's head he finally has a monologue and it starts with this very short statement it must be by his death and see how the rhythm of that really emphasizes must and death he also says his but of course we know who the he is in this case it's caesar and brutus apparently has been thinking it over in his head what to do 
and he's concluded he has to kill him. Now that's a way to start a monologue. And Brutus, being very rational, has to lay out exactly the reasons to himself. He has to justify it. He says, And for my part, I know no personal cause to spurn at him, but for the general. Spurn means literally to kick out or attack. He has no personal reason to attack him. He still likes him. There's no personal cause. He has to do it for the general. General usually means the common people. It could also be something like for the general welfare, the good of the people. Again, he's saying, I have nothing against him personally. I need to save my country. He would be crowned. He wants to be crowned. That's the problem. How that might change his nature? There's the question. So he likes Caesar, but if Caesar gets a crown, that's going to change who he is. It's also nice, right before Hamlet's written, to see there's the question. In some ways, Brutus is a little bit like a proto-Hamlet. He has to kill a guy, and he's agonizing over having to do it. So there's this nice little to-be-or-not-to-be echo. And then he has this very cool metaphor. It is the bright day that brings forth the adder, and that craves weary walking. So it's the bright day, not the dark night, that brings forth the adder. An adder is a poisonous snake. And that craves, in other words, it asks for, or calls for, weary walking. You get that strong W sound, weary walking. So there's a little bit of a timer on this scene. He doesn't know when day is going to break. It might be soon. But he knows that it's extremely likely that the next day, Caesar's going to get the crown. And he's comparing him to a poisonous snake that's going to come out in the daytime. So they have to walk carefully. He goes on, Crown him that? And then I grant we put a sting in him that at his will he may do danger with. So crown him that. In other words, crown him king. And then I grant we put a sting in him. A sting is literally like a poisonous bite that a snake might have. So if he gets that, he's going to become the poisonous adder. So he'll get this poison that at his will, in other words, whenever he wants, he may do danger with. And not just danger, but actual harm. So he may not naturally be a poisonous snake, but if he's crowned, he's going to become one. Brutus says, The abuse of greatness is when it disjoins remorse from power. The abuse of greatness, in other words, the improper use or transgression of greatness, of high social status, high power, is when it disjoins, when it separates remorse, like conscience or compassion, from power. So that's the danger he's worried about, that Caesar's going to abuse his power. So there's a little bit of a caveat here. He says, and to speak truth of Caesar, I have not known when his affections swayed more than his reason. So he's worried about Caesar gaining power, but he says, you know, I haven't really known a time when Caesar let his affections, in other words, his emotions or his feelings, sway, which means control him, presumably, more than his reason. So it's this contrast of his affections, his emotions, and his reason. And he says, in general, Caesar's reason wins out over his emotions. So maybe we don't have to worry about him abusing greatness. But no, he says, but tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder, whereto the climber upward turns his face. But when he once attains the upmost round, he then unto the ladder turns his back, looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. So we have another new metaphor. We've left the snake thing behind for a little bit. And now we have this ladder. He says, tis a common proof. Proof as in like a real world demonstration. It happens all the time in the real world that lowliness... In other words, the appearance of being humble is young ambition's ladder. Not necessarily a young person, because Caesar isn't young, but the ambition is. So like embryonic, growing ambition, uses that fake humility as a ladder to climb. So the climber upward, which is a great phrase, the person who's climbing the ladder turns his face to it. He's always looking at the humility. But when he once attains the upmost round, upmost as in the uppermost, the topmost, and round is rung of the ladder like a step. So when he gets to the top of the ladder, as soon as he does that, 
Then he turns his back to the ladder. He doesn't look at his lowliness, his humility anymore. Instead, he looks into the clouds, almost like he's becoming a god, scorning the base degrees by which he did ascend. Scorning like he's looking contemptuously. He doesn't need that anymore. The base degrees. Base means low or wretched. And degrees are steps, so there's rungs again. So he doesn't need the ladder anymore. He doesn't need his lowliness, his humility that he ascended by, that he climbed. Now he's looking into the clouds, and he brings it back. He says, so Caesar may. When he's crowned, he may totally change. Then, lest he may, prevent. These are very economical statements here. So Caesar may, then lest he may, prevent. There's no extra words. And really, that word prevent basically holds a whole sentence in it. We must take steps to stop him, lest he changes when we crown him. But it's really economical and terse. So that word prevent, essentially, is the moment when he decides, I'm going to do this. This is the ultimate justification. And as soon as he makes that decision, he needs to figure out how he's going to say it publicly. He says, And since the quarrel will bear no color for the thing he is, fashion it thus, that what he is augmented would run to these and these extremities. It's almost like he's writing a script to himself so that he can use it on other people. He says the quarrel, which means the case against him, the grounds against him, what we're going to use to justify killing him, well, that will bear no color. In other words, contain no excuse for the thing he is, the thing he is right now, rather than what he's going to become. So using how he's acted so far, there's no justification. So what they have to do is fashion it thus. Fashion means to shape or arrange or make the case thus, in this way. It's another case of construing. It's a personal interpretation that they're going to use against him, even though it doesn't actually match who the guy is. Now look, as we'll see later, Caesar may well turn out bad when he gets the crown. There's no way to know. But what we do know is that Brutus's justification is a little on the cynical side. We think he might become this, so we have to sell it that he will become this. So he's going to have to fashion it this way, like he's thinking of PR. And how are they going to fashion it? That what he is augmented. So again, that thing he is augmented, in other words, changed in the future, would run to these and these extremities. These and these are just sort of examples he'll make up. And extremities, not like the ends of your hands and feet, they're extreme actions, you know, bad ends, his sort of future tyrannous actions. So he's making a note to himself to list out what these actions might be. That's how they're going to have to justify it. So the thing he is isn't going to justify it, but what he is augmented may justify it. And then he returns to that original metaphor of the serpent. And I think this is amazing. He says, And therefore think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched, would as his kind grow mischievous, and kill him in the shell. So we have to think of him not as a serpent right now, but as a serpent's egg, something that could become a serpent, which hatched, would as his kind, kind here is like nature. You know, the nature of a snake is to bite. And because you know it's a serpent's egg, you know it's going to become something poisonous. So just like his real nature is, he'll grow mischievous. And mischievous for us has a much more benign meaning, like someone who's kind of playing tricks here and there. Now here it means more like evil or harmful or injurious. And because he could become this thing, we have to kill him in the shell. Crush him before he's born, before he gets the crown. And the language here is really cool. You get this short line and kill him in the shell. And it's all monosyllables, so it really slows things down. So this monologue starts with, it must be by his death, and it ends with, and kill him in the shell. It's someone who's working backwards his justification for killing Caesar. One more thing language-wise to look at in this speech, it's full of what's called enjambment, which means the lines are very irregular. In a lot of verse plays, especially before Shakespeare started writing, and early in his own career, you sort of get one thought per line or one clause per line. 
So there's a period or a comma at the end of a verse line, or there's sort of an understandable half a sentence. But in this speech, you have a lot of thoughts that start at the end of one line and spill over into the next one. And for my part, I know no personal cause. When it disjoins, remorse from power. Tis a common proof that lowliness is young ambition's ladder. You also have short little statements within lines. You have some unusual rhythms, like looks in the clouds, scorning the base degrees. So not just the regular iambic pentameter. And often when you have enjambment, when you have that spilling over from one line to another, it gives you a sense of someone whose mind is running on. So this is really one of our first chances to get to know Brutus alone, and especially to get to know his mind, which is where he spends a lot of his time. But it's also really important that one of the biggest things we see him doing here is thinking about image, about how he'll be perceived. And this is really the double bind of Brutus. I think when actors play this and when directors think about how to stage it, the choice is usually, well, is it a noble Brutus who's doing everything for the right reasons, or is it a cynical Brutus who just wants power and is justifying it to himself? And I would argue it's a little bit of both. We'll see it throughout the play. But even as he's thinking about what he calls the general, the common people, the general cause, he's also thinking about how is this going to be perceived? How can I look good for this? And this speech is really the first true example of it. It holds both those things at once. And just as that ends, Lucius returns. Remember that guy who went off to light a candle? He says, the taper burneth in your closet, sir. Taper, remember, is a candle. And he says, it's burning in your closet, sir. No, he didn't go into his clothes closet, open it and put a candle in there. That's a terrible idea. Big time fire hazard. A closet is like a sort of small private room. In this case, maybe the study he was referring to earlier. But he has new news. He says, searching the window for a flint, I found this paper thus sealed up and I'm sure it did not lie there when I went to bed. So he was looking for a flint, you know, the stone you use to set off a spark and light fire. He was maybe looking for one on the windowsill, and he found this paper, thus sealed up. Words like this and thus are almost like stage directions to the actor. Look at this paper. Look how it's sealed up. I'm sure it did not lie there when I went to bed. This is a new arrival. And Brutus replies, get you to bed again. So he's taking the cue from I went to bed, and Brutus says, go back to bed again. It is not day. In other words, it isn't daybreak yet. So maybe Lucius starts to leave, but then Brutus has a weird statement. He says, Is not tomorrow, boy, the Ides of March? Ides, remember, the midway point of the month, March 15th? And, not coincidentally, also the day the soothsayer said Caesar should beware of? So it's interesting that it comes right back to his mind. Lucius replies, I know not, sir. I don't know what day it is. And Brutus tells him, Look in the calendar and bring me word. Lucius says, I will, sir, and then he finally exits. And Brutus is going to start to read this mysterious letter which has arrived at his window. And how is he going to do it? He says, The exhalations whizzing in the air give so much light that I may read by them. So it's the middle of the night. How is he going to read? Well, these exhalations, which is a beautiful word. In this case, it refers to meteors. And why are they called exhalations? Well, meteors at this time were thought to be vapors that were drawn up into the sky by the sun so that they were exhaled from the earth. Now, of course, we know different, but exhalation is a cooler word. And what are they doing? He says they're whizzing in the air. It's nice to see that word here. It's really what they call onomatopoeia. It sounds right. Whizzing in the air. They give so much light that I may read by them. Remember, this is the same crazy night when all the weird stuff is going on in the natural world. And apparently part of that is meteors or maybe that fire from the sky that they were talking about earlier. But it's more omens, more of these natural phenomena that sort of bode strangely for the future. And he starts to read the letter by the light of these meteors. He says, Brutus, thou sleepst. Awake and see thyself. So the metaphor here is of someone who's asleep and not paying attention. And the letter says, Awake and see thyself. Hmm, where have we seen this language before? 
It was literally Cassius's language to Brutus in their first scene together. See yourself. Cassius is bringing that statement back into Brutus's mind. And there's a little taunting too. It's you've been asleep. You've let this all happen. Now you should see who you really are. And then the next statement is kind of weird. Shall roam, etc. And as we'll see later in the speech, this is really a blank for Brutus to fill in. Shall roam, what? And then it ends with this cool three-word prompt. Speak, strike, redress. Redress means make right or correct. So it's calling on Brutus to speak, to speak out, to strike, to take action, maybe literally to strike, as in kill, and redress. And by doing that, he's going to make everything right. And so Brutus, being the analytical guy that he is, and Cassius knowing exactly how his brain works, starts to work through all these words. He says, Brutus, thou sleepst awake. Such instigations have been often dropped where I have took them up. Such instigations. Instigations means promptings, encouragements. So this isn't the first letter he's seen. He's seen promptings like this often, and he's taken them up. He's opened them. And notice, by the way, that where I have took them up is a short line. So there's a little bit of silence maybe built into it. And then he tries to figure out the most mysterious part of this letter. Shall roam, etc. Well, what does etc. mean? He says, thus must I piece it out. Piece it out means fill in the blank or extend or augment it. I have to make it make sense. And so he starts to fill in the blank for himself. Shall roam, stand under one man's awe? Awe as in fear or intimidation. So that's the statement he wants to say. Shall Rome do that? What, Rome? Like even the great city of Rome? My ancestors did from the streets of Rome the Tarquin drive when he was called a king. So see the repetition of that word Rome? It's so important. The idea of Rome. Much more than the actual city in some ways. And why is it so important to him? Because he says, my ancestors did from the streets of Rome the Tarquin drive. Tarquin or Tarquinius was the last king of Rome, and he's the guy who was driven out of the city by Lucius Junius Brutus, who may have been an ancestor of this guy. And that's where the Roman Republic came from. Shakespeare also writes an earlier epic poem called The Rape of Lucrece, which is all about this moment, in case you want to go back and read the backstory. But Cassius's letter is working because it's getting Brutus to think all these important thoughts. And he's getting pretty riled up about this. And then he gets to the last part. Speak, strike, redress. Am I entreated to speak and strike? So am I entreated, am I asked, or even begged, to speak and strike? O Rome, I make thee promise, if the redress will follow, thou receivest thy full petition at the hand of Brutus. So I make thee promise, in other words, I make you a promise, Rome, talking to Rome as though that's a real thing. If the redress will follow, in other words, if the fixing what's wrong with the Republic will follow the speaking and striking, thou receivest, you'll get thy full petition, everything you ask for, speaking and striking, at the hand of Brutus, in other words, from Brutus. So by the end of this letter and after his monologue, he has really worked up. He has made a clear decision. He's going to do it. He's going to act. He's going to kill Caesar. Cassius' plan is working like a charm. He knows exactly how to get in Brutus's head. And right on cue, in comes Lucius with the answer to the calendar question. He says, Sir, March is wasted 15 days. Wasted means spent or past. So 15 days have gone by. This must be the Ides of March. But it's a really interesting word choice. As though Brutus has actually been wasting time. And he has to act now. And Brutus answers, "'Tis good." And then suddenly he says, "'Go to the gate. Somebody knocks.'" So presumably there's a little bit of a sound cue after his "'Tis good,' because someone starts knocking at the gate in the middle of the night, which is unusual. I really love the rhythm of this line, by the way. You can see how broken up it is into these three discrete statements. "'Tis good. Go to the gate. Somebody knocks.'" We are very far from a regular iambic pentameter line here. 
you get the sense of someone who's really agitated and worked up. And Lucius goes to answer the call, and with that, Brutus is left alone again for a second, and he starts going into another mini-monologue. He says, Since Cassius first did wet me against Caesar, I have not slept. So since the first time Cassius wet me, W-H-E-T, it usually means like stirred me up to or kind of spurred me on to. But literally it means sharpened like a knife or a sword. So you can imagine Brutus like a weapon that Cassius has been sharpening with his influence. It's a very cool image. And this is an interesting piece of information. He says, since the first time Cassius mentioned this to me, which presumably was when we saw them together. So since then, he says, I have not slept. These lines are in some ways a little bit of a trial run for a play Shakespeare's going to write in about five or six years, a play called Macbeth. You have a guy knocking at the gate, which also happens the night of the murder in Macbeth. You have a hero who can't sleep. It's all happening in the middle of the night. And whereas we think of Macbeth as someone who kills for ambition and Brutus as someone who kills for good reasons, political reasons, they are maybe not so far apart. Notice in terms of the language, by the way, that his last line here is a short line and it's a monosyllabic line. I have not slept. And then silence, silence, silence. It really builds him up for this next section, which is much more philosophical. He says, between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, all the interim is like a phantasma or a hideous dream. So he's been very reasonable. He's gone through point by point why to do this. But now we're getting somewhere much more emotional. Between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, it's a little bit backwards. Between an action and the first impulse or proposal to do it, so you could really reverse it. So between the first time the idea to do something dreadful enters our head and when we actually carry it out, all the interim is like a phantasma. A phantasma is almost like a hallucination or an illusion or a hideous dream. So once you've thought to do something awful like this, all the time before you do it is like an insane dream when nothing seems real. That's the experience he's going through right now. He goes on, The genius and the mortal instruments are then in council, and the state of man, like to a little kingdom, suffers then the nature of an insurrection. Genius, this is not in our modern sense of genius. It's what they would have called in Shakespeare's time an attendant spirit. It's a kind of immortal spirit that follows humans through their life and their death. The Romans called it the genius. The Greeks referred to it as the daemon. But anyway, it's sort of your soul or the spiritual part of you. So both that and the mortal instruments. Mortal instruments are like the earthly parts that carry out the wishes of the genius. The mortal mind and body, the things that decay when you die. So your spiritual side and your physical side are then in council. Almost like the ruling council of a country, they're debating. So every part of you is having a debate. And the state of man, the condition of a person, and not just condition, but it might also mean something like the government, because we refer to the council, and it's going to keep going on after this, this metaphor. He says the state of man, like to a little kingdom, like a miniature kingdom, all contained in one person, suffers then the nature of an insurrection. Suffers means undergoes or endures the nature of an insurrection, like an uprising or a riot. So while he's thinking about and planning the insurrection he's going to do against Caesar, there's an insurrection going on inside him. It's as though he has to do a civil war of his own within his own mind and body before Rome's civil war. So this really gives us a sense of his state of mind. Everything inside of him is fighting. And in comes Lucius again after this. Lucius, not a great part, but you get a lot of exercise running back and forth off stage and on stage. So we know there's a knock at the door. We also know who it probably is, and Lucius confirms it. He says... Sir, tis your brother Cassius at the door, who doth desire to see you. It's interesting that Cassius is referred to as his brother, and it turns out Cassius actually married Brutus's half-sister, so they're sort of in-laws. So it's Cassius who wants to see him, and Brutus knows exactly why he's there. He asks, is he alone? 
And Lucius replies, no, sir, there are more with him. So he's not alone. There's more people coming along with him. Brutus replies, do you know them? And Lucius says, no, sir, their hats are plucked about their ears and half their faces buried in their cloaks, that by no means I may discover them by any mark of favor. So their hats are plucked about their ears, as in they're pulled down over their ears. So that's the top half of their face. And then half their faces are buried in their cloaks. So the bottom half of their face is covered with their cloak. That, so that, by no means I may discover them. Discover means recognize or distinguish them from each other by any mark of favor. Favor is like appearance or looks, especially the looks of the face. So their faces are so covered up with their hats and their cloaks that Lucius can't tell who's who. And Brutus cuts him off by ending his verse line. He says, let him enter. And once again, off runs Lucius. And Brutus has another little mini monologue to himself. Clearly that mind is working, working, working. He says, they are the faction. Faction as in the group that's plotting against Caesar. They're here. There's no avoiding it. And then he goes off. He says, oh, conspiracy. Shame thou to show thy dangerous brow by night when evils are most free. So he's almost talking to the idea of conspiracy, of conspiring against another person. Shame thou. Are you even ashamed to show your dangerous brow? Not literally your brows, but probably something more like your face or your appearance by night when evils are most free. Free as in on the loose or running around. So if plotters are ashamed to show their face even by night, which is a time when evil runs wild, oh then by day, where wilt thou find a cavern dark enough to mask thy monstrous visage? So if you won't show your face even by night, then by day, where are you going to find a cavern, a cave, dark enough to mask, to hide your monstrous visage? I love this phrase. Monstrous, not just ugly like a monster, but actually unnatural or wrong or even ill-omened. And a visage means face. So how can plotters go out during the day? They can't. Where will they find a cavern dark enough to hide their face? You also get those cool repeated M sounds of mask and monstrous. So they're not going to be able to go out with their faces covered in their hats and their cloaks during the day. But he concludes, seek none conspiracy. As in, don't look for that dark cavern. What should they do instead if they can't hide their faces? Hide it in smiles and affability. Don't hide your face in masks. Don't cover your face. Hide it in smiles and in affability. Affability means friendliness. So that's how conspiracy hides its face during the day, with the mask of being friendly and smiling. For if thou path thy native semblance on, not Erebus itself were dim enough to hide thee from prevention. And why should they hide it in smiles? For if thou path, this is a very unusual verb, path. It literally means to go on a path, go on your way, follow your course. If you continue your conspiracy, thy native semblance on, with your natural appearance on, instead of the mask of smiles. Not Erebus itself, not even hell itself. Erebus was the underworld in Greek and Roman mythology. So not even hell was dim enough, dark enough, to hide thee from prevention. Prevention here means stopping to carry out your plan, or getting caught. So if you're planning something like this, you can never show your real face. Not even hell is dark enough to cover up that plot. The only thing that can hide it is pretending to be something else. And this is really interesting. Again, we're seeing Brutus planning the PR side of this, planning the outward appearances he's going to need to hide what's going on. He's not as torn up about the actual murder as he is about how he's going to make it look okay. And in come five or six of these conspirators, the people we heard about in the previous scene, led, of course, by Cassius and Casca. And Cassius speaks first. He says, I think we are too bold upon your rest. In other words, we're too bold to intrude on your sleep in the middle of the night. He says, good morrow, Brutus. Do we trouble you? Good morrow literally means good morning, which might be a little alarming to Brutus. Is it morning already? He says, do we trouble you? In other words, do we disturb you? Do we wake you up? So he's being very polite, but Brutus replies, I have been up this hour, awake all night. 
So he's been up this hour. He's been on his feet for at least an hour, but he's been awake all night. So he's been lying in bed. They're not disturbing him. He never went to sleep. But then he asks Cassius, know I these men that come along with you? Do I know these other guys? Because maybe their faces are still covered, or maybe it's just very dark. And Cassius replies, yes, every man of them. And no man here but honors you, and every one doth wish you had but that opinion of yourself which every noble Roman bears of you. This is definitely going back to that playbook, both from their first scene together and from that letter. So he says, know I these men? And Cassius takes that as his cue. He says, yes, every man of them. You know every one of these men. And then he continues using that word again. And no man here but honors you. This is a little bit of a double negative. It's an older phrase. No man here but honors you means there isn't anyone here who doesn't honor you. In other words, they all honor you. They all respect you. And everyone doth wish you had but that opinion of yourself which every noble Roman bears of you. Every guy here just wishes you had the same opinion of yourself that every noble Roman bears of you, in other words, holds towards you or has of you. They want to be his mirror again, show him how great he is. Notice using that word noble again, that buzzword. And then he starts going through and revealing who each of them is. Maybe they take off their cloak and hat as he does. He says first, this is Trebonius. And Brutus finishes his line, he is welcome hither. Hither means to hear. Cassius introduces the next one. He says, this, Decius Brutus. And Brutus finishes his line again, he is welcome too. And then he introduces a few at a time. He says, this, Casca, this, Cinna, and this, Metellus Cimber. And Brutus replies again, they are all welcome. It's all very ambiguous. They're welcome, I'll listen to them. And he asks, what watchful cares do interpose themselves betwixt your eyes and night? It's very formal, it's very poetic, almost as though he doesn't want to talk about the thing they have to talk about. Watchful here means keeping awake or sleep preventing. So what are these cares, these worries that are keeping you awake that interpose themselves? Interpose means insert or kind of intervene betwixt your eyes and night. Betwixt means between. So it's a very poetic way to say what's worrying you that keeps you awake. But it's literally the worries getting between their eyes, maybe their eyes closing, and night and sleep. But it's a beautiful and very elaborate line. And Cassius doesn't want to say it out loud. He says, shall I entreat a word? In other words, may I ask for a word with you, presumably in private? He's going to tell Brutus, but not out loud, why they're there. And so they go off in a corner and whisper to each other a little bit. And meanwhile, we get to meet the other guys. First, we see Decius Brutus. He says, here lies the east. Doth not the day break here? So they're all pretty worked up thinking about when day is going to start. So over here is east. Has day broken over here yet? And Casca says, no. And then another guy intervenes, Cinna. He says, oh, pardon, sir, it doth. Like, excuse me, actually, but it is breaking. And yon gray lines that fret the clouds are messengers of day. Yon, as in over there, those gray lines over there that fret the clouds. Fret means to sort of decorate or ornament, sort of like little gold threads in a tapestry. But in this case, it's the gray lines that decorate the clouds. They're messengers of day, of daybreak. In other words, they go before it to announce that it's about to come. And Casca, being a little bit of a jerk, corrects them. He says, you shall confess that you were both deceived. So in other words, you have to admit you're both deceived. You're both wrong. Here, as I point my sword, the sun arises, which is a great way growing on the south, weighing the youthful season of the year. Here, as I point my sword, in this direction that I'm pointing my sword at, the sun arises, which is a great way growing on the south. It's a considerable distance moved toward the south, which is weird because in mid-March, the sun should really rise about due east. He says, weighing the youthful season of the year, considering the young age of the year. You know, that it's early in the year still. It's coming more like from the southeast. And he goes on to explain, some two months hence, up higher toward the north, he first presents his fire, and the high east stands as the capital directly here. 
So some two months hence, about two months from now, you know, basically the summer solstice, up higher toward the north. So it will have moved up north, more like due east. So that's where he first presents his fire. That's where the sun first rises. And the high east, in other words, the exact east or the due east, stands as the capital, just like the Capitoline Hill does directly here. So he's saying, you're all wrong. You're looking in the wrong place. Here's where it is. And yes, this exchange feels a little bit like killing time while Brutus and Cassius are whispering to each other. But it's a nice way for us to get to know the rest of the conspirators a little bit, because there's not a lot of time we have with them. And especially Casca, who loves to be a contrarian. So after this whole sunrise thing is over, Brutus and Cassius come back. Evidently, they've had their little talk. Cassius has finally laid out the plan, and Brutus has agreed to it. As we know from his monologue, he's on board. And he says to all the conspirators, Give me your hands all over, one by one. All over here means all over again, which is a little bit of a stage direction. It seems to indicate that he shook their hands when they arrived, maybe when he welcomed each of them one by one. You know, you're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome. And he wants to shake their hands again, one at a time. And Cassius, who's trying to manage him a little bit, says, and let us swear our resolution. In other words, we should all swear that we're resolved to carry out this act we said we were going to do. But, and this is really, really important for their characters, Brutus overrules him. He says, oh, no, not an oath. We're not going to swear an oath. What are you talking about? If not the face of men, the sufferance of our souls, the time's abuse, if these be motives weak, break off betimes, and every man hence to his idle bed. So if the face of men, in other words, the sort of troubled facial expressions on everybody in Rome that he seems to see, although they don't really seem to be there, so if not that, the sufferance of our souls, and what we've had to put up with in our souls, the time's abuse, the corruption and the wickedness of these days we're living in, if all these things are weak motives, well, let's break off betimes. Betimes means early or right now. Let's break it up. And every man hence to his idle bed. Every man go away from here to his bed. And why is it idle? Well, probably because it's unused that night. They've been awake all night. There's also some negative connotation, like it's lazy. So we don't need to swear an oath because all these are really good justifications. If all of these wrongs that have been allegedly done to us aren't enough motivation, well, forget about it. Let's all go home and go to sleep. So let high-sighted tyranny range on till each man drop by lottery. I like this adjective, high-sighted. It means high-flying or kind of looking down from above, almost like a hawk. That's how he describes tyranny, that it's so high up that it's looking down on the rest of us to punish us. Let it range on. Let it sort of keep prowling the land until each man drop by lottery. Lottery here isn't like the lotto. It means something like the whim of the tyrant, literally chance. So if we go home and go to sleep... Then tyranny is going to keep wandering over the land, and each of us is just going to die by chance, by however the tyrant sees fit. But if these, as I am sure they do, bear fire enough to kindle cowards and to steal with valor the melting spirits of women, then, countrymen, what need we any spur but our own cause to prick us to redress? So if these, these motivations, as I am sure they do, bear fire enough, if they contain enough fire, enough inspiration, to kindle cowards... To stir up or to motivate even cowards. And kindle, of course, literally means to light on fire. It goes back to that bare fire enough image. So if that inspires even cowards and it steals with valor. Steal as a verb means to reinforce or inspire with valor the melting spirits of women. Melting goes back again to that image of fire. It means sort of weak or yielding or just giving up. So if even the sort of weak spirits of women and of cowards can be inspired, can be fired by the injustices of their time, then, countrymen, what need we any spur but our own cause? So why do we need any spur, any motivation, except for our own cause to prick us to redress? 
Prick means to urge on. Literally, it comes from the idea of a horse that you spur on to run faster. Their cause is that spur. To prick us, to motivate us, to redress, to fixing, you know, making right what's going on. And notice what Cassius has done. Cassius has gotten him to use his language. Remember, speak, strike, redress? Now Brutus is using the word redress. So we don't need to swear an oath. Our cause should inspire us. What other bond than secret Romans that have spoke the word and will not palter? You know, what other sworn oath do we need to bind us together than the fact that we're secret Romans? In other words, we're able to keep a secret that have spoke the word, that have said we're going to do this, and will not palter. Palter means to kind of like go back on or evade or quibble. It's enough that we're Romans that can be trusted. And what other oath than honesty to honesty engaged that this shall be or we will fall for it? So we don't need any other oath than honesty. In other words, one's personal honor. There's that word again. So my honor is engaged, in other words, sworn or pledged to your honor. And what are we swearing? That this shall be, that we'll do the thing we said we'd do, or we will fall for it. In other words, we'll die for it. And notice the structure of the speech. It's very clear rhetoric. What need we? What other bond? What other oath? These repeated questions. And he says, Swear priests and cowards and men coddle us, old feeble carrions and such suffering souls that welcome wrongs. So swear here means let them swear, like let priests swear. And priest is a little weird here, maybe because they were sort of seen as overly cautious and conservative. So let them swear. Let cowards swear. Let men cautelous swear. Cautelous is a really cool sounding word. It means cunning or deceptive. Let those guys swear. Old feeble carrions. Carrions are literally dead bodies. Here it means something like men who are practically dead. Let those weak old guys swear. And such suffering souls that welcome wrongs. Suffering here means submissive, that they'll put up with anything. People that welcome wrongs. People that are fine with being wronged or being harmed. I also like the alliteration of suffering souls. Like suffering succotash. Let all those wusses swear oaths. We don't need them. He says, unto bad causes swear such creatures as men doubt. You have to sort of rearrange the words again. Notice Shakespeare's done his favorite trick of pushing the verb to the end of the verse line, swear. But you could rewrite it as, such creatures as men doubt, swear unto bad causes. So suspect people, suspicious people, and not even people, he calls them creatures. They swear unto bad causes. So if our cause is good, we don't need to swear. Swearing's for people with bad causes. And notice that he compares creatures and men in that line. We're men, they are creatures, they're weak. But do not stain the even virtue of our enterprise, nor the insuppressive metal of our spirits, to think that, or our cause, or our performance, did need an oath, when every drop of blood that every Roman bears, and nobly bears, is guilty of a several bastardy, if he do break the smallest particle of any promise that hath passed from him. Man, you see what a long stretch that is? It's like almost ten lines in a row, basically without a breath. He's really working himself up in this speech, and all he's saying is we don't have to swear. He says, do not stain the even virtue of our enterprise, even here as in steady or unwavering. Don't stain it. Don't sully it. And what else shouldn't you stain? The insuppressive metal of our spirits. Insuppressive as in irrepressible or unstoppable. The metal, the strength or the vigor of our spirits. Don't stain that. Don't disparage it to think that or our cause or our performance did need an oath. So don't stain it by thinking that or, which means either, either our cause or our performance or are actually going through with this act that we're resolved to do, did need an oath. We don't need to swear. When every drop of blood that every Roman bears, bears means contains or holds, every drop of blood in every Roman's body, and not only do they hold it, they hold it nobly, is guilty of a several bastardy. 
Bastardy literally means not being your father's real son. And he's saying that every individual drop of blood is guilty of a several bastardy. Several means individual. So each drop would be unworthy of being their father's son if he do break the smallest particle, if he breaks even the tiniest little bit of any promise that hath passed from him. Passed from means has been said by him. So we don't need to swear an oath because every Roman knows he'd be letting down his ancestors, he'd be dishonorable, if he breaks even a little bit of what he promised. And this is quite a long speech about a fairly unimportant point, but he's really taking a stand here on his own. And notice this is a really important turning point in the play, because it's the first time he overrules Cassius. But I will warn you, it is not the last time. I count at least seven times in the play that he overrules Cassius. I'll point them out when they show up. I will also point out to you, that he is essentially wrong every time. So Cassius is a little bit of a weasel, but he's a good planner. And as we'll see, Brutus, not a wonderful tactician. He's a really good speaker. He's really well-respected. He's a noble guy. His heart is in the right place. But he also really feels the need to be in charge. And those are those two sides of Brutus again. The noble side that knows exactly what he should do and why, and a slightly more selfish side that wants to be in charge. So fine, if that's really important to Brutus, Cassius will let him have it. But he has another important question. He says, but what of Cicero? Oh yeah, remember Cicero, arguably one of the most respected and important politicians in Rome? Also, we know from yesterday, not very happy with Caesar. So Cassius says, shall we sound him? Sound as in sound out. In other words, see what he thinks of our plan. I think he will stand very strong with us. He'll definitely be on our side. And this excites the other conspirators. Casca says, let us not leave him out. And Cinna finishes his verse line. He says, no, by no means. They're really excited about this. Metellus Simber is even more excited. He says, oh, let us have him, for his silver hairs will purchase us a good opinion and buy men's voices to commend our deeds. Yeah, let's have him in on the plot, because his silver hairs, they're talking about the color, but in this extended metaphor, it's silver as in money. The fact that he's old and well-respected will purchase us, just as silver would buy goods, a good opinion opinion as in reputation, and by men's voices, not literally their voices, but like their support, they're speaking out on our behalf, to commend our deeds, to commend, to speak well of our deeds. So having Cicero on their side is going to be really helpful for popular opinion, which is important in this case, because they're about to kill the most famous person in Rome. It shall be said his judgment ruled our hands, ruled as in governed or directed. Everyone's going to say that he was actually behind it, so not only do they have his support, but if anything goes wrong, they can always blame it on him. Our youths and wildness shall no wit appear, but all be buried in his gravity. No wit here means not even a little. So the fact that we're young and wild won't even be mentioned a little bit, but all be buried in his gravity. Think of the image of buried, like submerged or hidden. All of our youth and wildness is going to be hidden by his gravity, which means his wisdom or his respectability or his authority. So respectable Cicero is going to make us all look better. But again, Brutus disagrees. He overrules them. He says, oh, name him not. Don't suggest that guy. Let us not break with him, for he will never follow anything that other men begin. Break with him, not in our modern sense of disagree, but reveal our plan to him, or even just speak with him. So let's not tell him this is happening. Why? He will never follow anything that other men begin. I love this because I've known a lot of older gentlemen who wouldn't do anything unless it was their idea, or arguably they had forgotten that someone else suggested to them so they could claim it as their idea. And this may actually be a fairly accurate assumption about Cicero. He could only do something if he felt like it was his idea. And Cassius is probably getting steamed at this point, so he just says, then leave him out. Notice that he finishes Brutus's verse line as though he just wants to get this over. 
And remember, Casca had just said, let us not leave him out. And Cassius ends up with, then leave him out. Fine, whatever. And Casca immediately flips. He says, indeed, he is not fit. Fit as in appropriate for our plan. Really interesting to see Casca flip this fast, as though he just kind of goes along with it. So what's happening again and again here is because of how much they respect Brutus, Brutus gets to basically make all the decisions, even though Cassius's ideas are probably the better ones. So fine, I guess that's decided. And then Decius Brutus has another question. Shall no man else be touched, but only Caesar? Shall no man else, shall no other man be touched? Not just touched, but here it means more like attacked or murdered. So is Caesar the only one we're going to kill? And Cassius says, Decius, well urged. Like that was smart of you to bring up. I'm glad you insisted on that question. Maybe he didn't even think of that. Or maybe he was going to bring it up. He goes on, I think it is not meet Mark Antony, so well beloved of Caesar, should outlive Caesar. I think it is not meet. I don't think it's appropriate that Mark Antony, who's so well beloved of, in other words, by Caesar, should outlive him. I like the parallelism in the sound of well beloved of Caesar shall outlive Caesar. You get the repetition of Caesar, you get those V sounds of beloved and outlive. So he's suggesting Mark Antony die at the same time. He goes on, we shall find of him a shrewd contriver. And you know, his means, if he improve them, may well stretch so far as to annoy us all, which to prevent, let Antony and Caesar fall together. So we shall find of him, in other words, we'll find him to be a shrewd contriver, a cunning plotter. And you know, his means, this can mean monetary means, but it usually means something more like his capabilities or his capacities. If he improve them, if he actually makes use of them or exploits them, may well stretch so far as to annoy us. Annoy not just like, uh, that annoys me, more like harm or hurt. So if he actually does what he's capable of, they could stretch out so far that they would actually hurt us. Which to prevent, to prevent him doing that, let Antony and Caesar fall together. Let them die at the same time. And I'll give you one guess who disagrees with this assessment. Yep, it's Brutus. He says, Our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius, to cut the head off and then hack the limbs, like wrath in death and envy afterwards. For Antony is but a limb of Caesar. Our course, our course of action, although there could also be a little bit of a pun, as we'll see later, on the word course, C-O-R-S-E, which is a synonym for corpse. So he says we're going to seem too bloody, Cassius, if we cut the head off the body and then hack the limbs. He's not talking about a literal body here. It's just an image. It's as though you cut the head off a person and they're already dead, and then you hack his limbs, as though that could do anything to make him more dead. And doing that looks like wrath in death. Wrath is anger. So we're angry in killing him, but then envy afterwards. Envy, not like I'm envious of his hair, but like extreme malice. So it's not just that we were angry enough to kill him, but then we were just kind of rubbing it in afterwards. I also like that sound of wrath in death. And then he has to explain this image. He says, for Antony is but a limb of Caesar. So once we kill Caesar, Caesar is dead. Who cares about the rest of him? In this case, Antony is the rest of him. He's going to find out, of course, that he's totally wrong about that later. And he goes on to really make a case for what they're doing. So this conversation was just about whether to kill Antony too, but now he turns it philosophical. He says, let's be sacrificers, but not butchers, Caius. This is a really interesting image. Let's be sacrificers. Sacrificers are like priests who kill animals for religious purposes. Remember, animal sacrifice was a big part of Roman religion. And Caius, remember, is Cassius. So he's comparing their murder to the sort of things that a priest would do. And then this is fascinating. He says, we all stand up against the spirit of Caesar. And in the spirit of men, there is no blood. So spirit can be something like soul. It could also be like the idea behind Caesar, the movement or the impulses of Caesar. And in the spirit of men, there is no blood. You can't kill a spirit. 
There's also a little pun here, which is spirit could also be ghost. And as we'll see, the spirit of Caesar spends a lot of time hanging out in this play. So he says we can't kill the spirit, but he says, oh, that we could then come by Caesar's spirit and not dismember Caesar. He says, I wish we could come by, we could get at Caesar's spirit without dismembering Caesar, without taking him apart physically. Dismembering is taking apart limb from limb. Basically, he wishes they could kill Caesar's spirit without killing the guy. Because remember, Brutus and Caesar as men are pretty close. He says, but alas, Caesar must bleed for it. In other words, for us to get at his spirit, Caesar has to bleed, even though there's no blood in his spirit. But I'd argue, as we find out later in the play, you can't kill his spirit. You can kill the man, but the spirit is going to live on. There's no way at it. Dismembering actually doesn't help. And so Brutus says, and gentle friends, let's kill him boldly, but not wrathfully. So gentle friends, here more like noble, let's kill him boldly, let's kill him strongly and resolutely, but not wrathfully. There's that word wrath again, not angrily. So we'll do it, we'll stand behind it, but it won't be because we're angry at him. He says, let's carve him as a dish fit for the gods, not hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. Let's carve him, let's cut him up, but notice that verb carve. It's a word you'd use for a sacrifice or even for a prized meal, like a turkey or a roast. So let's carve him up as a dish fit for the gods, like a sacrifice that we're going to offer to the gods, not hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. Hew is like chop or hack at, so not like something we'd feed to our dogs. And notice the cool parallel construction here. We're going to carve him as a dish, not hew him as a carcass. He'll be fit for the gods, not fit for hounds. So we'll treat him like an honored sacrifice. Although, as I think Brutus and the others will find, you can't really do it. Killing is killing. Knife in the heart is just knife in the heart. There's no holier way to do it. But he's basically saying, let's not run up the score. He says, and let our hearts, as subtle masters do, stir up their servants to an act of rage, and after seem to chide him. So let's let our hearts, as subtle masters do, subtle here not in our modern sense, but meaning like smart or astute. And what do subtle masters do? They stir up their servants. Stir up means to inspire or prompt their servants, the people who work for them, to an act of rage, and after seem to chide them. Chide is like scold or rebuke. So if you're a smart master and you want something violent done, you get your servant to do it, but then publicly you pretend like you didn't really want to do it and he just did it on his own. And who are the masters and servants here? Well, the masters are their hearts, and maybe the servants are their bodies that serve the wishes of their hearts. So their hearts have to be for murder without seeming like they're enjoying it or getting angry too much. And notice the kinds of language they're flowing through this part. He says, let's be sacrificers. Let's kill him boldly. Let's carve him as a dish. Let our hearts. This is another one of his bits of persuasive rhetoric. This is a speech to a crowd. Brutus thinks he's really good at this, and he is pretty good at it. He's a convincing guy. He convinces through language. And while the rest of the guys are talking practically, he's talking in very inflated, inspiring, rhetorical language. So back to the speech. Why should they act this way? Well, he says, this shall make our purpose necessary and not envious. So acting this way will make our purpose, our plan, what we intend to do, it'll make it seem necessary and not envious. Not our modern sense of envious, but malicious or spiteful. That same sense he used envy earlier in the speech. So this can't seem to come out of anger. It has to come from need, from patriotic need. Which so appearing to the common eyes, we shall be called perjurers, not murderers. So if it appears necessary to the common eyes, the eyes of the people, there's that image of eyes and seeing again, we shall be called perjurers, not murderers. 
So this is an older idea of medicine, which was still current in Shakespeare's time. The idea was that all diseases of the body were caused by some imbalance of a bodily fluid. So by purging some of that fluid, healers in this time were supposed to restore the balance of those fluids and they'd restore the health of the patient. In theory, anyway, what usually happened is they took a lot of their blood and they either died or got worse. But the image he's calling up here is really important. It's the image of a healer who causes a body to bleed so that it will get healthier, not a murderer who causes a body to bleed so that it will die. And the body here isn't Caesar's, it's the body of Rome. By spilling Caesar's blood, you heal Rome. That's the image he wants out there. Again, this is textbook PR. Don't use the word murderers, use the word purgers. That's how they want to be seen publicly. They're acting for the health of Rome. And finally, he returns back to the original image why he started talking. And for Mark Antony, think not of him, for he can do no more than Caesar's arm when Caesar's head is off. So there's that idea of Antony as just a limb of Caesar's body. And when Caesar's dead, you're not going to have to worry about his arm. But Cassius jumps on his line. He finishes this verse line. He says, yet I fear him. So Brutus says, think not of him. But Cassius interrupts. He says, yet I fear him. I am afraid of him. For in the engrafted love, engrafted is an image from botany. It's like deep-rooted, like one plant you graft onto another by tying them on so that there's no difference between the plants anymore. So the love that he bears to, that he has for Caesar, is so deep. And he's probably going to go on and say, he's going to be mad and he's going to do something to us. But Brutus literally cuts him off. He says, alas, good Cassius, do not think of him. Remember in that last line, he said, think not of him. And now he repeats it. Don't think of him. If he loves Caesar, all that he can do is to himself. Take thought and die for Caesar. So why shouldn't we be worried about Antony's actions after Caesar dies? Well, if he really loves Caesar, all that he can do is to himself. He can't do anything to us. He can take thought, which means sort of like plunge himself into sad contemplation, just think all the time, and die for Caesar. Maybe he'll kill himself because of Caesar. He can't do anything to us. Again, this is wildly off base. As you'll see later, this is arguably the biggest mistake that they make, is letting Antony live. So not only is Brutus convinced that the most Antony could do was kill himself, but he goes on, and that were much he should, for he is given to sports, to wildness, and much company. That were much he should means it's not even likely he'd do that. That's, you know, that's more than he's likely to do. He probably couldn't even kill himself. Why? For he is given to sports. Given means like naturally inclined or tending to. Sports, not like baseball, but like recreations or entertainments. He likes having fun, to wildness, and much company. He likes hanging around with other people. This guy isn't a threat. He's a party boy. Remember when Caesar was talking to Antony about why he didn't trust Cassius? You know, he was too sleek-headed, he got too much sleep or something. Well, the assumption is that Antony's the opposite of that. So Caesar always felt safe around him, and presumably Brutus thinks they should feel safe around him too. No worries from this guy, no threat. And Trebonius pipes in. He says, there is no fear in him. Cassius said, I fear him. Well, Trebonius disagrees. There's nothing to fear from him. Let him not die, for he will live and laugh at this hereafter. Hereafter means in the future, in the times to come. So if he survives, he'll end up laughing about this. It'll be nothing to him. I think this is probably driving Cassius crazy. Because not only does he think Brutus has some bad ideas and probably shouldn't be in charge of this, but he's starting to convince the other guys because he's a very good speaker. And then finally, we hear what time it is. Brutus says, peace, count the clock. Peace as in be quiet, count the clock. You get that hard K sound of count and clock. So somewhere a clock is striking. And Cassius listens and says, the clock hath stricken three. Now I should say, this is a total anachronism. There were no striking clocks in Rome. This was a modern invention. Some people say, well, this was just Shakespeare forgetting what time period he was writing in. You could also make an argument that this is deliberate, and it's Shakespeare reminding his audience that, I mean, this is kind of about Rome, but it's kind of about us, too. 
it's a nice way to bring the modern world into this ancient story and remind people this isn't about other people. This is about what's going on today. So they hear that it's 3 a.m. And Trebonius says, "'Tis time to part." But Cassius isn't done yet. He finishes that verse line. He says, But it is doubtful yet whether Caesar will come forth today or no, for he is superstitious grown of late, quite from the main opinion he held once of fantasy, of dreams and ceremonies. So they haven't finished plotting yet. It's doubtful yet, he says. In other words, it's still a question whether Caesar will come forth today or no, whether he'll come out of his house today or not. Why? Because he's superstitious grown of late. Of late means lately or recently. So for some reason, he's become more superstitious, quite from the main opinion. From means contrary to or far from the main opinion. Main here, not in our modern sense, it means firm or strong. So he used to have a strong opinion of fantasy, fantasy as in imagined things, not like stories about dragons, of dreams and ceremonies. Ceremonies are divination. It's those religious rites that are supposed to predict the future. So he used to have a strong opinion about these things, these omens. But now he's grown superstitious. He's moved away from that. And as an Epicurean, remember someone who doesn't really believe in omens, this probably drives Cassius crazy that he's changed his mind about this stuff. So what is he worried about? It may be these apparent prodigies, the unaccustomed terror of this night, and the persuasion of his augurers may hold him from the capital today. So it may be these apparent prodigies, not apparent in the sense we use it today, like obvious. It comes from the word appearing. Prodigies, these omens or signs, the ones that appear tonight. The unaccustomed terror, unaccustomed as in unusual or unfamiliar, the terror of this night. Remember, all this stuff is still going on around them, these crazy fires and lions and stuff. And the persuasion of his augurers. Augurers are those priests, these diviners who are supposed to see the future. So they're persuading him. And they may hold him from the capital today. Hold as in hold back or keep him back from going to the capital as he was requested to today. So he's worried Caesar's going to change his mind because of these bad omens. But Decius says, never fear that. Don't worry about that. If he be so resolved, I can oversway him. For he loves to hear that unicorns may be betrayed with trees and bears with glasses, elephants with holes, lions with toils, and men with flatterers. If he be so resolved, if he be resolved that way, in other words, to stay home, I can oversway him. Oversway is like override or persuade to do something different. For he loves to hear that unicorns may be betrayed with trees. Yeah, I didn't expect unicorns in Julius Caesar, did you? Betrayed here means caught, because supposedly, and I'm kidding you not, the way to catch a unicorn was that you stood in front of a tree, you got the unicorn to try to stab you with its horn, and then you moved away at the last second so that its horn got stuck in the tree. This is some real Looney Tunes stuff here. But if you believed in unicorns, this was, according to legend, how you caught them, by taking advantage of the fact that they couldn't stop very suddenly, I guess? Now I'm just trying to picture a unicorn with its horn stuck in a tree. Pretty hilarious. So he's saying you can catch unicorns with trees, you can catch bears with glasses, in other words, mirrors, and this comes from the idea that you would set up a mirror and then a bear would show up, become obsessed with its own reflection, and then the hunter could catch it without having to worry about it. You could throw a net over it or shoot it because it would be obsessed with looking at itself. Cool, I did not know that. Next time I go bear hunting, I will bring a full-length mirror. You can catch elephants with holes. Holes as in big pits in the ground that you cover over with grass or something. They still do this. You can catch lions with toils. Toils are like nets or snares. And men with flatterers. So you catch all these animals with these particular devices, but you catch men with flatterers, with flattery. But when I tell him he hates flatterers, he says he does, being then most flattered. So why all this stuff about catching animals? Because he says, when I tell him he hates flatterers, so everyone claims not to like flattery, 
He says he does that, but as he does that, he's being flattered. In other words, when Decius tells him, you're not the kind of guy who'd be flattered, that's a form of flattery that's convincing him. So what he's basically saying is he knows how to convince Caesar. Even someone who claims they can't be flattered can be flattered. You could say this is true of Brutus in a big way as well. He says, let me work, for I can give his humor the true bent, and I will bring him to the capital. I love that tiny little line, those three syllables, let me work. Three single syllables, let me work. Why? For I can give his humor the true bent. His humor like his disposition or his true nature. Decius says he can give Caesar's humor the true bent, which here means like the right direction. I can send it on the right way, and I will bring him to the capital. I can manipulate him to leave his house. But Cassius adds, nay, we will all of us be there to fetch him. So everyone's going to show up to Caesar's house to get him. And Brutus asks, by the eighth hour, is that the uttermost? By the eighth hour means by 8 a.m. Is that the uttermost? Uttermost is like the latest we should get there. And Cinna replies, be that the uttermost, and fail not then. In other words, don't fail to show up by then. And Metellus Cimber has another idea. He says, Caius Ligarius doth bear Caesar hard, who rated him for speaking well of Pompey. So this other guy, Caius Ligarius, bears Caesar hard. In other words, holds a grudge against Caesar. Why? Because he rated him, which means like scolded him, for speaking well of Pompey. Pompey being Caesar's old enemy. I wonder none of you have thought of him. I wonder, I'm surprised none of you thought of him for our conspiracy. So they're thinking of adding more people to the plot. And Brutus says, now good Metellus, go along by him. By him as in to his house, go fetch him. He loves me well, and I have given him reasons. In other words, I've given him reasons to love me. I've been very good to him. And as a result, he says, send him but hither, and I'll fashion him. Just send him here, and I'll fashion him. In other words, I'll mold or shape him to our plot. So that's also decided on. And Cassius finally decides to break up the party, because time's running out here. He says, the morning comes upon us. Maybe they can start to see the first flecks of light that they've been talking about. We'll leave you, Brutus. And friends, disperse yourselves, but all remember what you have said, and show yourselves true Romans. So disperse yourselves, go your separate ways. Maybe also go out one by one, so you don't go out in one sort of single suspicious group of all the important people in Rome. But all remember what you have said, and show yourselves true Romans. What are true Romans? Well, they're honorable Romans, whose word is their bond. Remember, he wanted to swear everybody to a binding oath. So in a way, this is kind of his backdoor version of that. Everybody remember what you promised. And Brutus has a really interesting follow-up to that. Remember that thing earlier on in his monologue about how if you're pretending to be something, you have to smile on the outside? Well, his advice here is exactly that. He says, good gentlemen, look fresh and merrily. Fresh means bright, like without a care. Look happy. He is always about external appearance. That's incredibly important to him. Let not our looks put on our purposes, but bear it as our Roman actors do, with untired spirits and formal constancy. So let's not let our looks, the way we look on the outside, put on, in other words, reveal or display our purposes, our intentions, our plans. But instead, bear it, in other words, play your part, as our Roman actors do. This is certainly a very, very meta moment, because of course they're actors performing in a play. So he's saying they should pretend just like actors do, with untired spirits and formal constancy. So untired could mean not tired, as in awake. But tired can also mean wearing clothes or wearing a costume. So untired could mean that their spirits should seem like they're not hiding anything. They're not wearing a costume at all. And formal constancy. Formal as in form. So we should have a consistent shape. A behavior that's just like it always is. Act well. Don't let anyone see through your disguise. And so good morrow to you, everyone. Good morrow as in good morning. And with that, all the conspirators troop out. 
So this is happening. They have plans. It's going forward. But we've also learned a lot about Brutus in this scene and what kind of leader he is. And as is so often the case in this play, just when a huge crowd of people leaves the stage, we're left with a very, very small scene lit. So everybody troops off. Brutus is alone for a second and he yells off, Boy, Lucius. Oh, so this is new information. We know that Lucius is young. He calls out to him, but no response. Fast asleep? It is no matter. Enjoy the honey-heavy dew of slumber. This is a very pretty, consciously poetic line, especially after the, like, firm rhetoric of what came before. It sort of slows the scene down. Enjoy the honey-heavy dew. Dew, remember, is water that's left on all the plants at night, here almost as a refreshment, like drinking cool water. In this case, it's the dew of slumber, of sleeping. So he's telling him to enjoy the honey-heavy dew. It's a beautiful image, as heavy as honey. You can feel that image. It's so tactile and languid, honey-heavy dew. Thou hast no figures, nor no fantasies, which busy care draws in the brains of men. You have no figures. Here it's like shapes that you imagine in your mind, nor no fantasies. Not in our modern sense, but things that are imagined. So there's no imagined images, which busy care, in other words, worry or anxiety, draws in the brains of men. I like that adjective busy, like it's working very hard. And care is drawing these images in the brains of men, as though there's a really anxious small person running around drawing images, like drawing graffiti, inside our brains. But really what Brutus is talking about, again, is himself. He's the one who has all these images running around his mind. He wishes he could sleep. Remember, he hasn't slept in at least a day. Therefore, thou sleep'st so sound. That's why you can sleep. You're not thinking and thinking like I am. And look at the alliteration in this passage. Figures and fantasies, honey, heavy, sleep, sound. It's a very poetic little section, and it has the effect of quieting down the stage after a very talkative section and preparing us for what comes next. And what comes next is really a surprise. This is a very male play. It is important men talking about important ideas. And all of a sudden, a woman enters the stage. Thank God, right? And it's as much a surprise to Brutus as it is to us. So his wife, Portia, comes on and says, Brutus, my lord? And he's shocked. He says, Portia, what mean you? Mean as in intend. Almost like, what are you doing here? What do you need to do here? What do you want to do here? Wherefore rise you now? Why are you waking up now? It is not for your health thus to commit your weak condition to the raw, cold morning. It's not for your health. In other words, it's not good for your health. Thus, in this way, to commit, commit like entrust, or give over your weak condition. Now, this could be referring to the fact that she's female, or more likely the fact that she's sick. To the raw, cold morning. Listen to the stress in this language. Normally, the syllable of cold wouldn't be stressed. It would be unstressed. But instead, we get these three stressed syllables. To the raw, cold morning. You really feel that rawness and cold. And he's just said to her, it's not healthy for your condition to be outside in the morning like this. And she comes right back to him. She says, nor for yours neither. It's really witty on her part. It isn't good for your weak condition, buddy. She's worried about him, but she's clearly also a little angry at him. She says, you've ungently, Brutus, stole from my bed. Ungently means unkindly or even not nobly. Remember, his favorite quality is his nobility. But she says, you're acting in a way that isn't kind or noble. And what has he done? He stole from her bed, snuck away from her bed, almost like a thief. Notice, by the way, that her language also uses that technique of enjambment. Remember where an idea runs across from one verse line to the next? It gives you that sense of agitation or running along. 
So he snuck away from her bed, and yesternight at supper you suddenly arose and walked about, musing and sighing, with your arms across, and when I asked you what the matter was, you stared upon me with ungentle looks. So yesternight, last night at supper, you suddenly arose and walked about, walked around, musing and sighing, musing as in pondering or thinking, and sighing, with your arms across, as in your arms crossed. This is sort of a classic pose of someone who's lost in thought. He's thinking, he's sighing, he's crossed his arms. You also have that A sound repetition, arms across. And when I asked you what the matter was, you stared upon me with ungentle looks. There's that word ungentle again, mean or not noble. She's hitting that again and again. He stared at his own wife when she asked him what was wrong with him. I urged you further, then you scratched your head and too impatiently stamped with your foot. I urged you further, in other words, I pressed you or I asked you again. Then you scratched your head and too impatiently stamped with your foot. So not just ungently, but impatiently. She's noticing all these physical things he's doing, where he's kind of acting out. So she's worried about him, but again, she's a little angry at the way he behaves, too. Yet I insisted, yet you answered not, but with an angry wafture of your hand gave sign for me to leave you. So yet, still I insisted, I asked again and again, yet still you didn't answer. But instead, with an angry wafture of your hand, that's a cool word, it literally means waving, but you can just see that kind of dismissive gesture. You gave a sign that I should leave you. I don't want to talk to you. Leave me alone. And again, we're used to this idea of the noble Brutus, but here's a guy who's so lost in thought that he's kind of mean to his wife. And if you look back across this section, what you see is her anatomizing him, looking at all these parts of his body. It starts with the arms across. Then he stares at her with his eyes. Then he scratches his head. Then he stamps his foot. Then he waves his hand. So all these physical gestures, but he won't tell her what's wrong. He didn't say, leave me. He gave a sign for her to leave him. And notice right at the end of this anatomizing section, we have a line of monosyllables. Gave sign for me to leave you. And then it even extends into the next sentence. So I did. It slows it down and gets us ready for the next section, which is going to have much longer words, much more complex ideas. So she did leave him. So I did, fearing to strengthen that impatience which seemed too much enkindled, and withal hoping it was but an effect of humor, which sometime hath his hour with every man. So I did, I did leave you, just like you asked me to, fearing to strengthen that impatience which seemed too much enkindled. Remember he impatiently stamped with his foot? Well, she was worried that if she pressed him further, she was going to strengthen his impatience, which seemed too much enkindled, i.e. already going. So he was already impatient. Literally, it means lit on fire. So it was too fiery already, and she was worried about strengthening the fire. And withal, withal means in addition or moreover, hoping it was but an effect of humor. She was hoping it was just sort of a symptom of a bad mood he was in, which sometime, you know, occasionally now and then, hath his hour, has its time with every man. So everybody has a time where they're in kind of a bad mood. And she figured if she just left him alone, things would work themselves out. But it hasn't happened. He's in the same shape he was. It will not let you eat, nor talk, nor sleep. And could it work so much upon your shape, as it hath much prevailed on your condition, I should not know you Brutus. Notice again those monosyllables. He's slowing it down. It will not let you eat, nor talk, nor sleep. And could it work so much? Work means have an effect or change your shape as much as it has prevailed, in other words, succeeded or been victorious on your condition, your state of mind, your disposition. So if this mood could change your shape as much as it's changed your state of mind, I should not know you Brutus. In other words, I wouldn't recognize you as Brutus. That's how changed you are inside. 
if it changed your outside shape in the same way it changed your inside shape, I wouldn't recognize you anymore as my husband. And she concludes, Dear my lord, make me acquainted with your cause of grief. It's a really strong end. So dear my lord, in other words, my dear lord, make me acquainted with your cause of grief. You know, tell me what's causing you to feel this way. And notice the rhythm of this line. It's not make me acquainted, which is the usual iambic pentameter setup. No, it's make me acquainted. It's a hard stress on the first syllable. It rockets the end of that forward. And after that long, very convincing speech, all Brutus can say is, I am not well in health, and that is all. This kind of pathetic, again, all monosyllables, slow, meek response. I'm just not feeling very healthy. That's it. But Portia's not having any. She says, Brutus is wise, and were he not in health, he would embrace the means to come by it. So if you weren't healthy, I know you would embrace the means. In other words, you'd carry out whatever it takes to come by it, to regain your health. But she doesn't see him doing anything for his health. And Brutus responds, why, so I do. He says he is taking steps to become healthy again. And in a way, you could argue he is. Number one, he's taking steps to heal Rome as he sees it. Rome is sick. And maybe he's also saying literally, well, I'm actually taking steps to make myself feel better. Don't worry about me. So it has a kind of double meaning, a secret one for him and then an obvious one for her. And then he just says, good Portia, go to bed. But again, she's not having it. She says, is Brutus sick? So you're sick? Oh, interesting. And is it physical to walk unbraced and suck up the humors of the dank morning? If you're sick, is it physical? Not like the Olivia Newton-John song. Physical here means healing or medical or therapeutic. To walk unbraced, which means with your jacket open, not laced up, and suck up the humors. Humors at this time were damp vapors, which were usually around at night. They're supposedly the source of all illnesses. So is it healthy for you to be breathing in these vapors of the dank morning? Dank means damp or moist. She sounds like my mom a little bit, although probably everybody's mom. You say you're sick, but you're going out in the cold and wet morning? What, is Brutus sick, and will he steal out of his wholesome bed to dare the vile contagion of the night and tempt the roomy and unpurged air to add unto his sickness? Oh, really, you say you're sick? You'll steal out. Remember, she used that verb earlier. You'll sneak out of the wholesome bed. Wholesome here means healthy. It's much healthier to be inside in bed than it is outside in the night. So you're sneaking out to dare the vile contagion of the night. Dare means here risk. So you're going to risk the vile contagion. Contagion means like an infectious power. Because again, this moist night air was supposed to be what made people sick. So you're risking going out in the infectious night and tempt the roomy. Roomy meaning something like damp. It especially refers to the kind of sickness that drips in your nose and mouth. Hacking cough, running nose kind of sickness. So he's tempting the roomy and unpurged air. Unpurged means not purified. And what purifies it? The sun. Because the idea was once the sun came up, all those unhealthy night vapors evaporated up into the air and it was fine again. So you're tempting this gross wet air to add to your sickness? You're sick and you're doing that? No. My Brutus, you have some sick offense within your mind, which by the right and virtue of my place I ought to know of. He says he's sick physically, but she says, no, you have some sick offense within your mind. She nails this guy. She knows him so well. There's an offense, something that offends him, like a disturbance in his mind. And here we're using sick in a different way. It's making him sick, mentally, if not physically. Which, by the right and virtue of my place, virtue here not in the sense of, like, chastity, but power or authority of my place, of her place as his wife, her position, I ought to know of. So it's only right for a husband to share this information with his wife. And actually, after all that formal rhetoric that we got from Brutus earlier, this is some pretty formal rhetoric from Portia. 
with all that repetition of sick. Is Brutus sick? Is Brutus sick? Add unto his sickness. You have some sick offense within your mind. So that repetition really slams it home. It's not a physical sickness. It's a mental sickness. So she demands to know. She says, And upon my knees I charm you by my once commended beauty, by all your vows of love, and that great vow which did incorporate and make us one, that you unfold to me yourself, your half, why you are heavy, and what men tonight have had resort to you, for here have been some six or seven who did hide their faces even from darkness. So this is a long sentence. She says, upon my knees, which leads one to believe that she actually is supposed to kneel at this point. She falls down on her knees like a beggar. She says, I charm you. Charm means like, I beg strongly. I request. By my once commended beauty. Commended just means praised. But she says once, that at one point people praised my beauty. She's using that as one quality to call on him to tell her what's going on. And another one, by all your vows of love. All the vows you swore to me. And not just that, that great vow. The vow of marriage, which did incorporate. Incorporate literally means make our two bodies one. You know all that stuff about husband and wife being a single flesh? That's what she's talking about. They made us one, made us one person. So by all those important things, I ask that you unfold to me. Unfold means reveal or lay out to me. And what does she call herself? Yourself, your half. Because again, they're incorporate, they're one. So now she is himself. She's half of him. You also get that cool sound image of self and half. And what does she want to know? Why he is heavy. Not like why he's gained weight, why he's sad. And what men tonight have had resort to you? Oh, so she saw the men. She knows. Had resort, not like they went to the Caribbean. It means visited or met with you. So who are these men? So she doesn't only want to know why he's sad and upset. She wants to know who these guys that visited him are. For here have been some six or seven who did hide their faces even from darkness. So when it's that dark out, why do they even have to hide their faces? They must be hiding something huge. And just when she brings out that really top secret material, he cuts her off. He ends her verse line. He says, kneel not, gentle Portia. Don't kneel, gentle Portia. There's that word gentle, which can mean kind, but can also mean noble, in the same way that she used ungently with him. And you get that repeated end sound of kneel not. And then she comes back at him with true poetic wit. He says, kneel not, gentle Portia. And she responds, I should not need if you were gentle Brutus. So if you were the same noble Brutus I knew... I wouldn't need to kneel. And she isn't only echoing his language with that gentle Portia, gentle Brutus thing. She's echoing the sound with kneel and need. I love the way she turns his language back on him. This is something that a couple might do in a Shakespeare comedy, play with language like this. The effect on stage is of someone almost being put in their place. And she keeps going after him. She says, Within the bond of marriage, tell me, Brutus, is it accepted I should know no secrets that appertain to you? So accepted means like an exception. So within the bond of marriage, is there just this one exception that I shouldn't know any secrets that pertain to you? Appertain means relate or belong. So we swore that we would love and all that stuff, but we weren't allowed to know any secrets. Am I yourself, but as it were, in sort or limitation? To keep with you at meals, comfort your bed, and talk to you sometimes? So there's that word self again, which she used in the previous speech. Self, half. So am I a part of you, but only, as it were, in sort or limitation, you know, in a limited way for part of the time. And what's fascinating about this is that in sort or limitation is actually a legal phrase. So clearly this is a very smart person, not just someone's wife. She can stand rhetorically with the best of them. So am I only your wife? Kind of. 
to keep with you at meals, as in keep company with you at mealtime, comfort your bed and talk to you, but only sometimes? Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? I love this word choice. In the suburbs of your good pleasure. Suburbs literally like outlying areas. So the suburbs of his good pleasure means that she only gets to share the parts that he wants her to share. Those kind of outward parts where he shares a little bit with her, but nothing true and real and personal. In Shakespeare's time, by the way, the suburbs were the bad parts of town, where the brothels and the entertainments were located. It's where the Globe Theater was located, in the suburbs, next to the execution grounds and the bear baiting and all that good stuff. We're used to suburbs being the nice part, but this is like the crappy neighborhood of what pleases him. If it be no more, Portia is Brutus's harlot, not his wife. So if it's no more than just those suburbs, those occasional moments with him, then I'm your harlot, your prostitute, not your wife. A wife gets to share real things with you, not just your bed and your mealtime. And this is really harsh. She's saying, you're not treating me like your real wife. You're treating me like a prostitute. And Brutus replies, you are my true and honorable wife, as dear to me as are the ruddy drops that visit my sad heart. Oh, look who actually has a heart. This finally gets him to respond to her. She says, you're not treating me like your wife. He says, you are my wife. And not just wife, true and honorable, which you know, terms that mean a lot to him. You're as dear to me as are the ruddy drops, ruddy as in bloody, that visit my sad heart. So you're as important to me as the blood that runs through my heart. It's actually a very pretty image, the drops of blood visiting his sad heart. And that's great. He's actually responded to her. But she follows up. She says, if this were true, then should I know this secret? So if I were really your wife, then I would know your secret. I grant I am a woman, but withal a woman that Lord Brutus took to wife. So I grant, I admit, yeah, I'm only a woman. But withal, nevertheless, I'm a woman that you took to wife, that you married. I must be important. I grant I am a woman, but withal a woman well-reputed, Cato's daughter. So she repeats that same phrase. I grant, I admit, I am a woman, but withal, nevertheless, I'm a woman well-reputed, a woman with a good reputation, someone from a high station. And in fact, I'm Cato's daughter. Who's Cato? Well, Cato is a famous Roman philosopher and politician who famously clashed with Caesar and then killed himself rather than be captured. That's something that would have happened in real life about two years before the events of this play. So his death was very recent and famously honorable. He wouldn't be captured. He killed himself instead. She comes from a really good family, a really famous, a really honorable family. So see, she knows rhetoric and she's using it against him with that repetition of, I grant I am a woman, but with all a woman, dot, 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 using it twice. Think you I am no stronger than my sex, being so fathered and so husbanded? So do you think I am no stronger than my sex? In other words, other women? Since I have such a great father and such a great husband? Tell me your counsels. I will not disclose them. Counsels are like secret matters. If you tell them to me, I won't disclose them. I won't reveal them. And then here's the kicker. I have made strong proof of my constancy, giving myself a voluntary wound here in the thigh. Whoa! She what? She wants to prove to him that she won't tell his secrets, so she says, I have made strong proof, in other words, I've made a strong demonstration, or I've provided strong evidence of my constancy. Constancy meaning like fortitude or trustworthiness or steadfastness, that you can trust me, by giving myself a voluntary wound here in the thigh. Basically, she's demonstrating to him that she can be trusted if she's willing to cut herself in the thigh. And this is usually a great moment on stage. Often she'll reveal it when she says here. I suppose theoretically you could even do this live on stage where she wounds herself to prove how strong she is. And I think sometimes this is played as like, oh, crazy Portia, self-harming. 
I don't think that's what this is at all. I think she's proving on Roman terms just how trustworthy she is in a way that, to be honest, Brutus himself can't do. Remember, he didn't want to swear an oath earlier. This lady is tough and she's strong and she is Roman. In a lot of ways, she's tougher and more Roman than he is. She says, can I bear that with patience and not my husband's secrets? In other words, can she put up with that wound with patience, without complaining, and not keep her husband's secrets? And he's so overwhelmed that he finishes her verse line. Oh, you gods, render me worthy of this noble wife. Render, in other words, make me. He's praying to the gods to make him worthy of this wife of his. And what adjective does he use? The most important one to him in the world, noble. He feels unworthy of her. And you know what? He probably should. And then he says, hark, hark, one knocks, another knock at the gate. Hark means hear or listen over there. Someone's knocking. Portia, go in a while, and by and by thy bosom shall partake the secrets of my heart. So go inside just for a little while, and by and by, which means soon, thy bosom, which literally means chest, but here is probably something more like heart or even soul or your inner being, shall partake, will share in the secrets of my heart. So it's as though he's going to share the secrets of his heart with her heart. So she's so convincing that he's going to reveal to her the most important secret that he keeps. And again, this is another scene of a person using language to convince someone else to do what they want. All my engagements I will construe to thee, all the charactery of my sad brows. So all my engagements, all my commitments, everything I've committed to do to someone else, I will construe to thee. There's that word again. Here it means something more like explain. But given what an unusual word it is, anytime you see it, it seems important in this play. So I'm going to explain all the commitments I've made, all the charactery, which literally means writing, like referring to letters as characters. So all the writing of my sad brows. Sad not in our sense of upset, but meaning more like serious or solemn. And brows, yes, literally like your forehead, but here it means something more like your face or your facial expressions. So he has all these serious expressions, and he's going to explain to her the charactery, in other words, the emotions that are written on his sad face, like a translator or interpreter. You see also that repeated construction of all my engagements, all the charactery. And he finishes, leave me with haste. Haste is speed, leave me quickly, because she can't be around when this guy comes in. So she runs off, and she's probably pretty happy. She's gotten a commitment from him to actually tell her what's wrong. And in come two guys. One of them is our old friend Lucius, who apparently woke up when the door knock happened. And Brutus says to him, Lucius, who is that knocks? In other words, who is it that's knocking on the door? And Lucius replies, here is a sick man that would speak with you. And Brutus remembers Caius Ligarius that Metellus spoke of. Remember Metellus was talking about this guy who had a grudge with Caesar, but who was sick, and that he was going to send him to Brutus's house? Well, here he is now. And he says to Lucius, boy, stand aside. And Lucius either stands off to the side of the stage or he leaves entirely. And Brutus says, Caius Ligarius, how? How is basically short for how are you doing? And Ligarius responds, vouchsafe good morrow from a feeble tongue. Vouchsafe is something like, please accept. Accept a good morrow, good morning, from a feeble tongue, from a sick tongue. In this case, it's his tongue, saying good morning to him feebly. And Brutus says, oh, what a time have you chose out, brave Caius, to wear a kerchief. So what a time have you chose out, have you chosen, selected, to wear a kerchief? A kerchief, in this case, is a cloth, usually a sign of sickness that you wear around your head. So it may not literally be an actual onstage kerchief. It may be more like an expression. To wear a kerchief means to be sick. So you've chosen a hell of a time to get sick. Would you were not sick? In other words, I wish, or if only you weren't sick. So Brutus says, I wish you weren't sick. And Ligarius replies, I am not sick, if Brutus have in hand any exploit worthy the name of honor. So the back and forth cueing of this is fun. 
I wish you weren't sick. Well, I'm not sick. If you have in hand, if you're planning, you have under consideration any exploit, any act or enterprise that's worthy the name of honor, that's worthy being called honorable. So if you've got something honorable for me to do, I'm not sick. And then Brutus takes a cue from Ligarius's language, from that exploit. And Brutus takes his cue from Ligarius's language, where he says, if Brutus have in hand any exploit, Brutus replies, such an exploit have I in hand, Ligarius, had you a healthful ear to hear of it. So I actually have just such an enterprise in planning. Had you, if you had, a healthful ear to hear of it. So if you're healthy enough to hear about it. And Ligarius is excited. He says, by all the gods that Romans bow before, I here discard my sickness. So he's swearing by all the gods of Rome. He says, I discard my sickness. I throw off my sickness. Sometimes you'll see a stage direction that says something like he takes off his kerchief. Well, maybe if he has a kerchief on, if it's a literal kerchief. If not, he could just be discarding metaphorically his sickness. And when you're an actor or a director, you can choose exactly how sick you want him to be. Are we talking on death's door? Does he just have a really bad cold? But he says, forget about my sickness. And then he launches into this sort of ode to Brutus. He says, soul of Rome, brave son derived from honorable loins, thou like an exorcist hast conjured up my mortified spirit. He calls Brutus soul of Rome, almost like the conscience of Rome, the most important innermost part of it. Brave son derived from honorable loins. Brave not just in our sense of like brave to fight a lion, but brave can here mean like excellent or noble. Derived, in other words, descended from honorable loins. Loins obviously have the literal physical meaning of where babies come from, but here it just stands in for ancestors. So he hails his honorable ancestors and he says, thou like an exorcist. It's a really cool image. An exorcist, not necessarily someone who dispossesses possessed people, but someone who conjures up spirits. So like an exorcist, you've conjured up my mortified spirit. Mortified in that sense of mortality, his spirit was almost dead. But Brutus brought it back to life, brought it back from the grave. He feels that much better. He says, now bid me run and I will strive with things impossible. Yeah, get the better of them. So bid me, in other words, just ask or tell me to run and I will strive with, I'll compete against impossible things. Yay, in fact, I'll get the better of them. I'll beat them. That's how much better he feels. He can run against anything. What's to do? And Brutus finally reveals it. He says, a piece of work that will make sick men whole. Whole here means something like healthy, like wholesome. So we're going to do some work that's going to make sick men healthy again. Interesting. And Ligarius knows exactly what he's talking about. And he says, but are not some whole that we must make sick? It's a nice little pun. You know, in fact, it again sounds like something that might belong in a comedy. It's true wit. He turns his line around. So we're going to take sick men and make them whole, but we also have to take some whole men, some healthy men, and make them sick. He's referring to Caesar and his crowd. And notice, by the way, for this extremely important exchange, again, monosyllables. A piece of work that will make sick men whole, but are not some whole that we must make sick. It really slows it down. You have two people communicating a message between the lines. And Brutus kind of likes his joke. He says, that must we also. We also have to do that too. We have to make the whole people sick. What it is, my Caius, I shall unfold to thee as we are going to whom it must be done. Again, they won't just come out and say it. He says, what it is, you know, what it is that we have to do, I shall unfold to thee. I'll reveal to you as we are going to whom it must be done. As we're going to the person, it must be done too, which seems to imply that they're on their way to Caesar's house. And Brutus is going to let Caius Ligarius in on the plan as they're on their way. This is something that Shakespeare likes to do a lot. Right at the end of the scene, 
he'll remind everyone what we're about to do and how exciting it is, and then everyone will head out. And Ligarius is so excited, he doesn't even let Brutus finish his verse line. He says, Set on your foot, and with a heart new-fired, I follow you to do I know not what, but it sufficeth that Brutus leads me on. He says, Set on your foot. In other words, proceed or advance. You start walking, and with a heart new-fired, which means like rekindled or newly lit on fire, newly excited, I follow you to do I know not what. I don't actually know what I'm going to do. I have a general idea, but it sufficeth that Brutus leads me on. It suffices. It's enough for me that Brutus is the one who's leading me to do it. So he's saying, before I even know what the plan is, I'll follow you because you're you. And Brutus is so excited and bolstered by this that he then finishes Ligarius's verse line. He says, follow me then. Let's go. It makes for a really exciting end to this very long contemplative scene. But now there's a sense at the end of this scene that we're going off to do this thing. The plan is finally going into motion. Well, that's the end of part two of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. When we come back for part three, we'll finally see that plot put into action. Exciting, right? I hope you're enjoying Clear Shakespeare. If you do, I really appreciate it if you would subscribe on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, please leave a good review. I'd also really appreciate it if you could help to make this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. Thanks a lot. Bye.